Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's going on, everybody? How do you do, interneters? What's going on? We are back at it again. Um, before we get started, we are going to take a quick second to talk about Studio headphones. Go over to studio.com, and you will find all kinds of awesome headphones. They've got in the ear, over the ear. They've got completely uh, complete Bluetooth. They've got awesome headphones. You put in Dark Windows 15 at checkout. When you find something, you take 15% off your entire order. So... Seth. Hi. You got something real quick? Well, yeah. If you're already on the interwebs and you're all done with, you know, looking at studio headphones and, you know, figuring out all that fun stuff, why don't you go up to that search bar and type in GameMV.net? You'd be like, wondering why. Why should I go there? Well, if you or anybody you know likes to pay miniatures like myself, you can see all the amazing hobby tools that are there, such as a hobby holder, a paint puck, a brush bastion, a brush beam all this wonderful little hobby tools, including a wet palette, anything else you may need or anybody else you know may need. You find what you like, put it in the checkout cart, put in that promo code BROADSTONE at checkout, and guess what? You'll save yourself 10% off your entire order. Woo! Yeah. So this week we are back at our series on the Westies that we're going to be talking about with uh, Justin Rimmel from Mysterious Circumstances. Except for he ain't here right now. Yeah, he's unfortunately not going to be with us this week because he's apparently stuck in a fucking, like, legitimately haunted house. <laughs> so. That's not so bad. Yeah, no, it'd definitely it be. be worse places, but. So. so last week. No, or not last two weeks two ago. Two weeks ago. So last time we discussed uh, the Vanderbilt Evans killing and how, well, not last time, two times ago. Yeah, two the weeks very, ago. The very first start of this whole series. And. We discussed how Jimmy basically was getting off of the crime because of the code of Hell's Kitchen of see nothing, say nothing. Code of silence. Yep. Because if you say anything, snitches get stitches or they get shot. If they don't go after you, they go after your family. And it all started with that uh, very famous man, Oni Madden. And if you want to hear more about him, listen to last week's episode because Kevin covered him and did a really good job on it. So, with that said... We're going to move on to August of 75. Patty Dugan, he kills Dennis Curley. And this is all because of an argument that they had between each other. And then, you know, he shot him. And, well, this didn't set too well with with Jimmy. And he was, you know, kind of had his eye on Patty. Well, Patty being an alcoholic and kind of a drug addict, he kind of took things into his own hand and he decided that well he was going to kidnap uh charlie krueger uh for a second time yep. now when I, I say second time it's because the first time he was taken hostage by patty and billy Beatty, 
And this was because Jimmy told them to do so because he had owed Jimmy, Charlie had owed Jimmy a lot of money. How much does your life suck when you actually get kidnapped by the same people twice? Yeah. <laughs> for, again, a certain amount of money when it's like, you already got me once. Doesn't matter. We're going after you again. It's like, how, how much does your life suck? Well, the thing is, though, he didn't kidnap him the second time because of the money. He kidnapped him the second time just because he was an alcoholic and drug addict. Still, though, it's he still got kidnapped twice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, how many times have you been kidnapped? Never. See? Hope not to be. This poor bastard's been kidnapped no. twice. So they kidnap him, ransom him off. Jimmy actually takes the monies and um, splits it between Jimmy and Billy. And then he tells him, uh, I mean, Patty and Billy, and he tells him, okay. You were to leave Charlie alone. Do not touch him. Yeah. Don't do anything to him. Quit fucking harassing him. Yeah. Well, Patty, like I said, an alcoholic and druggie, doesn't listen. He kidnaps him again for a second time on uh, November 17th of 1970. Well, in November or somewhere like that of 75. This pisses off Jimmy. So he makes him disappear in November 17th yeah, of 75. Yeah, this is fucking brutal. Well that's, what, well, that's what happens. You don't listen to the big boss, man. Yeah. You know he has propensity yeah. for violence, as we've covered before. And, well, hearing that he disappears, uh, Mickey, as Kevin and Seth had said uh, the, during the first episode, that he, Mickey's in jail this time. Yeah. And Patty was friends with Mickey. This is Mickey Featherstone. Yes. Yeah, so everybody knows, not Mickey Spillane. Yes. So got to make sure because doing the whole research as always what got me confused is like wait which Mickey we're talking about? But and the thing is, Mickey Featherstone was actually friends with all three of these guys that were involved. So that's yeah. why when he got out of prison, when he found out about all, all this stuff, he was so upset because it's like they're on his very short list of trusted exactly. Friends and that's or, not how you treat your friends. You don't set your friends up. You don't kill your friends and stuff like that. So it, it didn't jive with his sense of loyalty well, that he had. Sense he of was honor. actually in prison when he found out. Right. But when, when he got out, the first thing he did was went looking. Yeah. Because yeah, one of the things I remember was he's like, well, who did this? Why do they do this? And then he did some investigation on his own. Like, yeah. wandering around asking questions yeah. and literally doing everything he possibly could to find out because next to Coonan, like, he was the only other person he kind of really trusted and hung out with on a fairly decent basis, on a regular basis. Yeah. The the thing that sticks out to me the most with the Patty Dugan killing was that him and Eddie Comiskey killed him, killed Patty Dugan in an apartment building where Jimmy's, uh, I think it was his mm. sister. No, niece. Yeah, but I think his sister was living there as well because his niece was young when they killed him. Uh, yeah, maybe. And uh, yes, that's, that's yes. I okay. Yeah, you're saying this, and that kind of all comes back to me. So yeah. they invite him over. Yeah. So she's. They're like yeah. walking down the hallway, and uh, he's got this bag, and there's just stuff running out of it. And his niece steps out into the hallway and goes, "What, Uncle Jimmy? What's that?" He just looked at her, goes, "It's Patty Dugan's head. Get back in there." <laughs> and, 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 she, and she thought that he was, you know, he, joking or something, you know. But she was like. Well, yeah, because they're going downstairs to the basement. Yeah, they were going down to the uh, the furnace because they were going to burn his body in the uh, in the furnace. Finish chopping him up, and yeah, it takes some stones to just be able to say that to a child and be like, and also for the child to be like, oh, that's his uncle Jimmy. He's being but silly. But Jim, Uncle Jimmy was uh, 
like a psychopath. He was a psychopath. But he was a good uncle. But he was uh he was very um he she looked up to him a lot. Yeah. And it's yeah, he was successful and Yeah. She loved him. So then like like they were going around all these different bars after they'd killed Patty Dugan, pretty much like bragging about it, like Jimmy and Eddie Comiskey were. And at one point in time he sent Billy Beatty back to uh, was it? Du- I believe it was Dugan's apartment. He said, "There's a carton of milk in the refrigerator. I want you to bring that here." Oh God! Here we go. <laughs> and he's like walking down the street with it, and he shakes it, and he hears something rattling, like kind of sloshing around in it, and he didn't. Oh, uh, I'm not. I'm not gonna. You know, I'm not gonna open it. Whatever. And he gets there, and he goes, "What's in that?" And he goes, "It's Patty Dugan's cock." <laughs> just like, so they've got like they've got his dick in a carton of milk. And you just like get rid of it, throw it away, whatever. It's like, why would you put it back in the fridge? Dick milk? <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? Put that in your cereal or something? Come on, man. Ugh. Never know. Put that with your no. Ugh. Well, I mean, frosted flakes. Get it, kids? It, oof. Dick milk and frosted flakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Patty gets his and you know, gets the whack. Well, Jim Eddie also. Is that a joke because his dick ended up in a milk carton. Gets the whack. <laughs> Maybe, possibly. <clears throat> So that was good. <laughs> Eddie kind of gets his sorta, I guess, because in August twentieth uh, of seventy six, Eddie is drinking a at the Sunbright Bar when a car pulls up. Guy gets out, goes into the bar, shoots him in the back of the head, yeah. kills him dead. Walks out of the bar, gets back in the vehicle, and drives off. The shooter was would be later identified by the bartender as Joseph Mad Dog Sullivan from a picture that Jackie Coonan had showed him. From when they were in, I believe it was Attica together. Still yeah, amazing was, to me that someone would do that. Yeah, just broad fucking daylight, just walked in, pop. Like, yeah, like half the time I walk into a bar and I'm like, the first thing I'm doing is like, no one notice me, please don't notice me. I didn't want to sit at the bar and drink a beer and be by myself. <laughs> yeah. And not think about a guy that's like, hey, you're just going to come in and put a bullet in the back of your brain. So, yeah, by this time, so Mickey's out of jail. Yeah. Um, And actually, with Mickey getting out of jail in 1975, um, the first thing that he did when he got out was he went straight down to the 596 Club, which, like we mentioned last time, was uh, Jimmy Coonan's bar. Uh, Jackie Coonan's. Well, it was technically Jackie's, but Jimmy owned it because Jimmy couldn't have his... Well, Jackie and Mickey owned it, didn't they? No, no, no. That was the other one. But... The 596 was technically in Jackie's oh. name because Jimmy had a record, so he yeah. couldn't own property. Well, no, that was in his brother-in-law's name. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's Not right. Not in Jackie's name. That's right. The other one is Jackie and Mickey. Yeah. Um, too much going on. There's too many fucking bars, and they all have the word club in them is the problem. True. So he goes straight down to Jimmy's club, the 596, and confronts Bill Beatty. Bill, uh, Bill Beatty, from what they how they described him, was kind of like a tall, gangly-looking fuck. And he's just behind the bar, like, washing glasses, and he's like, Billy, we need to talk. Uh Uh-oh. I'm busy. No, Billy, let's go for a walk. We need to talk about this. I guarantee you the shitting bricks. Like, oh, crap, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. So they end up going for a walk, and uh, Beatty explained to me, he's like, listen, I didn't have any choice in the matter. Jimmy and Eddie forced me to call him to set him up. Uh, You know what they do. You know how they are. Yeah. And... Like, as as pissed off as he was at this whole situation, he still couldn't stay mad at Jimmy at Jimmy Coonan because he had that loyalty to him for what he helped him with. Which, if you're not sure about that, in the previous episode we discussed when Mickey needed a gun, 
you know, Jimmy hooked him up with a pistol. Yeah. Took care of some <laughs> shit. And then. But didn't he, like, didn't he. There was like, a few con- other instance, instances. Didn't he actually confront Jimmy, too? He, what? like, walked right up on the street. Was it like- was weird because they were, like, him and uh, Featherstone and Beatty were actually in the middle of having this conversation. And Jimmy Coonan just, like, happens to be walking by and butts in on it. And he's like, listen. Billy's not lying to you. We told him he had to help us, yada, yada, yada. And Mickey's like, okay, fine, cool, whatever. Yeah, well, he has nothing to hide, and he also knows word's going to get around when old crazy Featherstone's popping out. Yeah, and during this conversation, Jimmy Coonan actually told him, you know, Mickey, there ain't no reason that with all this going on, you shouldn't be in on it. I mean, you've been to prison for crazy shit, you know, stuff you don't make any money on. You come in with me, you make money. This way, you ever go back to the joint? At least we're trying. Uh, at least we're trying to make a buck, right? Well, yeah, because it's like you know, you're. He- I think what it was is Jimmy knew that Mickey was going to go back to prison at some point. Oh, yeah, there was because, no doubt. Because as we established, he has propensity for violence. He's paranoid, possibly schizophrenic. He is, you know, deemed insane because he's spent a couple nights in an asylum. He's done a bunch of crazy things. Yeah. He's impulsive. So he's probably like, oh well, we'll coax him. We'll try to get him in. He trusts me. I can keep using this tool in the way that I need to, but in the same breath, I'm keeping them under my thumb so that way hopefully this dog doesn't turn around and bite me. Right. But Mickey, like you were just saying, understood the logic of it, and he had you know, he had the gratitude for him. But from where he was standing, it didn't look like Jimmy actually needed him at this point in time because he's got all these other guys around him. He's got Eddie Comiskey, who's a fucking killer. Yeah, Stone Just Cold, brutal, brutal dude. He's like, you don't need me right now. Well, let me know if you know. I'm, yeah. You know, you know where to find me, pretty much. So, and he, he was he's so loyal to him. He's like, yeah. you know, hey, no, no matter what, he goes, if if you ever need me, I will be there yeah. because you know, ride or he, die. He gave him that. That always harkens back to he. Hey, he's the one that gave me the pistol. Yep, the whole thing like, with Linwood Willis, know. where he, you know. So, after a few months, Mickey started to reconsider this whole working with Jimmy thing. He was living on about $150 a week from his veterans' benefits and Social Security with his brother, Bobby, rent-free. And uh, it wasn't really easy for him to find a job with his criminal history and his mental history and all that stuff. Um, He tried a couple of, like, get-rich-quick schemes, and they didn't really work. Um... And then he kind of realized that all roads lead back to Jimmy Coonan at this point. So the good thing for Featherstone is that he didn't have to build the reputation as somebody that you shouldn't fuck with, considering by the time he was 21, he'd already had three murders and beaten all three cases for them. Pretty much had that by the time he came out of the military. Yeah, exactly. So this is 76. I... Um, yeah, like late 75, early 76. Yeah, so, well, yeah, so this is, you know, getting into that, close to that time of things really kicking off even yeah. better for him. He'd spent a little under five years doing a tour of New York's correctional facilities, including the Bronx State Hospital, for eight months. Uh, he spent eight months in Sing Sing. He was up up towards us in Comstock for nine months. I've tr- I've actually toured that, that prison facility. It's Great Meadow. Not bad fucking terrifying well he was in breath he was in great meadow for eight months also well great meadow is their max and then there's also the other one which is their low security across the street yeah comstock has two he he was in both of them (laughs) well dude i wonder if this guy got a t-shirt for each one imagine he's like i went to comstock and all i got was this crummy (laughs) t-shirt dude imagine that you're going around like can i get a shirt can i get a plaque 
Get one of those little coins. It was like, I was here. Stamp my jail passport. Well, oh, he, that'd be awesome. But wasn't he more like in the, the nutty part of it, though? Still it, counts. It doesn't though. say. Uh, because he, he, well, it kind of, oh, hold on. I don't, I mean, I don't know if because a... I, I got I, I stepped on my own tongue there. Um, he also spent a, uh, spent a couple of months in Madawan. Um, he was in Attica for a few weeks and then back to Madawan for the rest of his stint. Um his time in prison was a giant shit show because he was constantly getting into fights with people. Uh, he kept getting bounced from the psych ward back to Gen, uh, Gen Pop and back and forth. Because every time he was in the psych ward, they're like, okay, you're doing fine. We're going to put you back into general population. They put him into general population and he'd beat the fuck out of somebody and end up back in the psych ward. It was like <laughs> flip flop, flip flop, back and forth. Which makes me wonder, did he want to stay in the psych ward because he knew where it was? He knew it was... And in, in a weird it's sense, peaceful and it's safe. Yeah, he knows what he has to do. He's there. Where if he's in general population, he has no problem starting a fight with somebody. Also berating somebody if they don't follow the same thing as him mm-hmm. as like he did when he was in the institution the first time. Yep. And also, he's paranoid. He's a paranoid schizophrenic, like established schizophrenic. So having him in general population, he's automatically going to see issues everywhere. Mm-hmm. And if someone looks at him cross-eyed or just like looks at him wrong, he has zero hesitation to go after him. Where if he's in the psych ward, he gets his own like nice little he, room. He gets it, some pills. He's, he gets, he's got no anger filter. He just goes from normal to yeah, just like that. Have well, you got, ever watched Train Spotting? Uh, Bibidi or whatever his name is. Bibi, yeah. Bieber, whatever. That dude. Where. And one second he's fine, and then all of a sudden he's throwing a mug of beer over the side of the railing, and then all right, let's go for a fight. What got me was uh, I I couldn't understand why <clears throat> he went from if he got in a fight he went back to the psych ward right. instead of like you know usually most people if they do that they go into solitary. Well, Maybe it was just because because of his mental. I think break, it was because of the psychological issues that they didn't put him into yeah, solitary because he probably would have gotten even worse. Yeah, you know, so there's like oh well we're not going to do that we're going to put him. Back in the psych ward. She just left him in the psych ward. But when, really, if you think about it, because he's now becoming a perpetual offender. Yes. He should have stayed just in the psych ward or, as you were saying, in solitary confinement because now he's becoming a risk. Yep. He's for himself and the other inmates and even probably to the guards in some cases. Yeah, because, I mean, hell, we have, I, we've heard about the people that are in uh, in a Comstock prison. Yeah. That's, 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 that's one the of them. super. What's that? What the supermax for New York, isn't it? Uh, for the local area, there's another one. Yeah, because I believe Denimar is a, su- a max facility too. Yeah, but that's way the Christ up north of. And I don't think they would let college kids wander around a supermax prison. <laughs> However, I made a friend. So Mickey would actually come out of prison more dangerous than when he than he was than he went in. Because he'd learned to focus while he was in there, so instead of just having, like, the unchecked rage, which he still had, he had learned to focus it. So and no longer is he the Incredible Hulk of anger. Now he's, like, Wolverine. Yeah. Because he's short, <laughs> stout, and he's angry. Yeah. He has military experience. And uh, and he knows how to focus his, his hate mount, like, his hate switch. But the problem was that when he came out, he still had that mindset of everybody, you know, the police, the neighborhood, kids, everyone was out to get him. So paranoid schizophrenia kicking in. So there was actually people that thought, you know, hey, if I find this guy in a bar and I kick his ass, people are going to know that I'm a badass, you know? Why? Good luck. One of these situations came about on an afternoon when Mickey was drinking at the 596 Club. 
I love this story because <laughs> I totally believe it happened, and it's something I would think I would see in the Steven Seagal movie. So this dude and his girl uh, started just jawing at him, their mouthing off at him. Oh, yes, yes. And the guy starts talking like, oh, I'm a, I'm a karate expert, you know. Surprised and, it wasn't uh, like Jeet Kune Do because it's during the height of the Bruce Lee phenomenon. Right, yeah. I know I know martial art where now we have people that – I know UFC. Well, Bullshit, get the that, fuck out of here. It was back in that Married. generation where every like every form of martial arts that would have been anything like that was karate, you know? Pretty much, You yeah. could have been learning kung fu. I know karate. So, <laughs> so Featherstone and the state and the stranger kept just you know, jaw jacking at each other, and the guy comes up and he asks him, he goes, "You think you're a motherfucking war hero? Is that it? You think you got balls? Well, I got more balls than the balls you got." So they squared up. Dude takes up his karate stance, without putting down his drink. Mickey Featherstone goes completely fucking Indiana Jones, just fucking whap, punches this guy in the face and knocks him knocks his ass out. <laughs> Yes. Didn't even put his drink down. Like, I don't know if that's really Indiana Jones. Well, no, what, what I'm thinking is like the dude coming at him with a sword. And, you oh, know, yeah. He's, he's the, like, the he's got a fucking scene. malaria and he just shoots him. He's like, fuck this, you know? So, with that. <laughs> so he then sets a bar stool on the dude's chest to pin him to the floor and he makes the, <laughs> makes the guy's girlfriend go over and sit on the stool. Sit. <laughs> they made a very good, they made a very strong point to mention that she was overweight. Yeah. In the book. That's kind of rude. Right. I, I know why, but I'm just saying yeah. it's still rude. You could just say she was of average size. So he makes this dude's girlfriend sit on the stool and finish her drink before she could get up and let him up off the ground. And you know it wasn't a fast, like, chug it kind of style. It's more like, sip it. No, slower. I like to think that he just handed her a glass, like a, a fucking pint glass of whiskey, because in my experience with the women that I know, they take a drink of whiskey and they're like... This is fucking terrible. So you're not going to chug it, obviously. No. You're <laughs> Some of us can. Well, yeah. Mm. Some of us are more experienced than others. Another point where Mickey's life would take a little bit of a turn was just a couple of days after he had had that little talk with uh, with Billy Beatty and Jimmy Coonan had walked in about the whole thing with Patty Dugan. So he's sitting at uh, Amy's Pub, which is one, one of the nicer like bars, restaurants kind of things in the area. Had a nice big picture window, potted plants, hanging ferns. Didn't smell like Dale beer and piss <laughs> on the floor and blood. I thought it was really funny that they're like, you know what made this place real nice? What's that? It had tablecloths. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. Any stains? Yeah, they, they made a very good point of that in the book. They're like, it had tablecloths. It was a nice place. Because <laughs> it is of the time, man. Think about it. Everything we've ever described for these clubs and these hangouts and these taverns or whatever. Think like a dive bar. It, it, it's like Goodfellas. You see, like that scene where, like, right at the very beginning, where they walk in, like, they got the tablecloths and the plants everywhere, and then some of the other bars in it, where it's just like it looks like some dude's fucking basement, pretty much. Yeah, you know? like I was going Boondock Saints. Yeah, fair enough. We gotta get you a proverb book or something. <laughs> this big some mad shit's gotta go. Make like a train, get the fuck out of here. So in this Sorry. bar, he would meet his future wife, Sissy Houlihan. So he had known that her brother had recently OD'd. Uh, another one had been beaten and paralyzed for life, and she was a recovering heroin addict. So kind of like that match made in heaven where you got, you know, this girl and Mickey Featherstone who go and fucking fall head over heels for each other. But they were, but she was also from a big family. I yeah, believe, she was right, from, too? she was like one of the younger of like 11 yeah. or something like that. Sometimes and, the damaged toys find each other. Yeah, exactly. Broken magnets still attract each other. 
But she was, you know. That's good. She seems to, you know, in the long run, she seems to be, like, the, oh, yeah. the best thing to ever happen Yeah, to like, like Justin was saying, you, you thought Edna Coonan was a ride-or-die chick? No. <laughs> well, yeah, because she's been through all this, you know, trials and tribulations of drugs, alcoholism, probably abuse, you know, being in a large family. Who God only knows what happened to her there. And then you have Mickey, who's been abused, drugs, alcohol, and all yeah. this stuff. So they actually have a common bond rather yep. than his first wife where it was kind of like an arranged marriage in a weird sense. She had no idea what the hell was going on. Yeah, I, I think marriage it was more like, a, like, hey. A necessity? Just, yeah, like they Love. just met and they're just like, hey. Let's fucking get married. Let's you go know? to yeah. Vegas. Let's go get to Vegas. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, we're fucking so in love. Yeah. I just love you. Then she's like, no, man, you don't love me. But Where <laughs> with this, it feels they have commonalities that bring them together, as you said, with like the magnet analogy. So it would make sense that yeah. this would work because if you have something that you have, like someone that you have some sort of a connection with, nine times out of ten, it's a lot better than someone you have zero connection Absolutely. with. And you're just with like, yay, I have a pencil. And you want to plus, draw? I mean, didn't didn't he kind of know her from the neighborhood though? Yeah, vaguely. Like he knew her brother, kind of. So he had met her, but not like they didn't know each other. Know each there other. Was a aged gap. I'm, I'm yeah, a little mistaken. little bit, not a huge one. Um, but we're, we're going to find out later on that uh, Sissy didn't take shit from nobody. No, <laughs> yeah, baby. Not especially not even Edna. Yeah, no. <laughs> boss's wife starts mouthing off, and Sissy's like, "Listen up, bitch." I will fucking kill you. <laughs> and she does drop the bitch word. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, eventually after dating for a while, um, the pair would move in with her family on West 51st Street. And at the time, there was something like seven people living in a five-bedroom apartment that her parents owned. So they didn't stay there very long. And they ended up getting their own place at uh, 520 West 56th Street, which was uh, an apartment complex. Wait which, a minute. They had a five-bedroom apartment? Yeah. The, Holy fuck! Back Dude, then, these are, was, back these then are it was common than what we have around here. It, that was common back then because nowadays people go, "Well, I've got a five bedroom apartment. I can hack it up into, you know, four be- like four one bedroom apartments, and rent them out for seventeen hundred dollars a month." Yeah, and also it's different with each area too. Yeah, true. Because around here we have old one family homes that are fucking massive, mm-hmm. and then they're cut up into like you were saying. Like, I know a guy that has apartments, and that's what he does. Yeah. He takes giant one-family homes and breaks them down to see how many uh, many apartments he can put in. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. So, against orders from the parole board, uh, Mickey and Jackie Coonan decided, we're going to open up our own little bar out on 44th Street. They had, a, you know, they had this great idea, like, we're going to have a nice, quiet place for the boys to drink. Play some pool, smoke some cigarettes, it'll be fine. But considering the company that these two kept, it didn't stay quiet long. Well, I mean, one's last name is Coonan. Yeah. So They're also in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Notorious hangout spot for And, Ruffians. you know, it wasn't too long before Jimmy decided, hey, look, little brother's got something. Yeah. So what... This is a really interesting story because I think it kind of comes into play of maybe how how broken Mickey's brain actually was. So one night at the club, Eddie Comiskey, Jimmy Coonan, and, quote, a bunch of Puerto Ricans from Brooklyn okay. were shooting pool. 
Mickey wasn't really in the mood to be around people, so he decided he's going into the back room, he's laying on the couch, falls asleep. (laughs) He wakes up the next afternoon in the same position he fell asleep in. He goes back out to the bar, place is fucking trashed, he's got a pounding headache, he, th- like, his brand new pool table's got stains all over it. It's raspberry. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh... He's like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, what happened here? He, he's, like, he's touching the, the pool table, and it's blood on the felt. And he's like... He's like, Eddie, what the hell happened last night? And, uh... Comiskey told him that he's like, well, you got into it with one of the Puerto Rican guys, and uh, you knifed him. And uh, Jimmy and I had to, quote, take care of the situation... And uh, they explained to him how their whole, as they were, were, as they refer to it, the Houdini Act worked. Um, the scary part is Mickey hmm. remembered none of that whole thing, which is one of the first times ever. Because even when he's been completely plastered on whatever it may be, he still remembered some of the stuff. Yeah, exactly. And like he, he's so... like he felt he fell asleep and he woke up in the same position. So either a. He sleptwalked, killed somebody. You know, I've sleptwalked and ate before. Me too. Or B. Not really. He didn't fucking do it, and they just blamed him. I think, no, I think they were just fucking, Jimmy and and Eddie were fucking with him. And, because they were like, you went fucking nuts. You just, you you fucking killed him. My thing is, why would you (laughs) fuck with somebody they already know is fucking crazy? Because they can. (laughs) It's nuts. You do realize, who is, which Coonan is this? Uh, Jimmy. Now, who does he have a really strong tie of loyalty to? That's true. (laughs) So think about it. As we specified before and as we spoke about, he knows he can fuck with Mickey. He knows he can do it because Mickey won't combat him, won't go at him at all, won't fight him, because he trusts him. He's one of the few people he trusts. So what he'll do is he'll be like, oh, I I guess I did that. And, you know, Eddie is Eddie, so why would he lie? Because he's probably told the truth about it. He, He... yeah, dude, I fucking killed a guy. Whatever. Fuck it. I don't give a shit. Yeah, so why would he do this? Well, now this is a little bit of foreshadowing for what may happen in the future. Because, I mean, probably what happened was... Or, or the, was it a fucking prank? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? no, or, honestly, or was it a prank? Yeah. I think, honestly, that there was a fight like due to a pool bet gone wrong or something like that. Right. And was, that's what I was just going to say. From there, have you... Okay, let me do this have you ever been pool sharked or you ever Yo, pool fuck shark? yes yes so back in college <laughs> i used to do that with a buddy and there was a couple of times where if you did it to the wrong person they would be fucking pissed oh, i i have no doubt in my mind that there was a fight i'm saying with the murder i think maybe they're pulling that off as a prank on on mickey no i think there was a legit murder oh no no and yes were, but i i think they were like oh mickey a... you went fucking nuts dude even yeah. though he was oh, sleeping I, like a baby in the back i don't think it was a prank i think they had him do it because he already you know questions his sanity and everything else that's fair enough i think that they know that they can pin it on him and he'll be like oh okay because he trusts these people explicitly at this time, he trusts everything they do, and as we've talked about before, he has undying loyalty to these men, mm-hmm. to these people that are part of his group. So what? So I think that they killed him, and instead they're like, yeah, you fucking did it, and so he would just take it. A couple days later, in January of 1976, Mickey would be with Coonan and Kamiski to see the, the Houdini Act firsthand. The unlucky victim was a guy with an even unluckier nickname, Ugly Walter. What's the Houdini act, Kevin? <laughs> oh, well, after watching Coonan and Kamiski dismember Walter and put the parts into separate trash bags and dispose of him, 
Mickey would never be able to get this image out of his head. Because I think with all this talk that he did from when he you know, when he came back from Vietnam, he's like, oh, I saw people dismembered fucking everywhere. They're my, our guys were coming back missing arms and shit. I don't think he saw any of that shit, and I think this he was, was the clerk. first time he ever saw anything, and it fucked him up that badly. He probably saw some stuff in the med lab and whatever right. when, after he got his un-wanted you know wanted circumcision. It's it's. But I think he never saw anything to this degree. And let's be honest, home jobs like this? Yeah. Girl. Well, be a lot a, messier. There's a difference between seeing it, someone coming back out of action. Because right. there's a possibility he did see somebody coming back with right. missing limbs. And seeing it happen. But, yeah, versus <laughs> watching someone cut someone else up. Yeah. You know, basically doing that. That's that's a different, uh, you know, little, little, little action there. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, I, I, didn't he actually like, puke? Oh yeah, he fucking like, yeah, he, like, he, yeah. He tossed his cookies hard because he's like, dude, I can't, I can't be in on this shit. And Jimmy was actually like laughing his ass off because he was puking. Probably call him a pussy or something. <laughs> so at the same time, the body started disappearing. NYPD officer Richie Egan joined the syndicated crime unit of the intelligence division. 1974, he was part of Operation Undercover, which was a major narcotics investigation up in Spanish Harlem. When he uh, when these case when working these cases he started getting a lot of experience with organized crime and I wanted to just throw that little blurb in there real quick because he comes back Richie Egan's going to play a big story the mm-hmm. further we go um, August twentieth of nineteen seventy sixth seventy sixth this is where you mentioned earlier with uh, Eddie Comiskey getting yes. getting whacked do you want to cover that or you want me to talk on it yes August of uh, 20th of 76, Eddie Comiskey, uh, while drinking at the bar at the Sunbright, yeah, at the Sunbright bar, not that drinking at the bar Sunbright. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it's either the Sunbright bar or the Sunlight Lounge, depending on what the Sun. I'm sorry, the Sunbright bar or the Sunbright Lounge, depending on what fucking paragraph you're reading. It, it changes. It bounces back and forth. But. Well, they were, re- re- were drinking at. He was drinking at a bar named Sun. He was at the Sun, Sun something. The Sunbright. Yeah. When a guy comes in, like, well, a car pulls up. Guy gets out, goes in, and shoots Eddie in the back of the head. Well, later on, the guy was identified as Joseph Mad Dog Sullivan. Can, can I jump in real quick? Yeah. Because I found I, – I, I wanted to put it in because it was kind of a sad detail, I thought. After they're, as they're bringing Eddie Comiskey's body out of the bar, uh, Tony, Luchis, Tony Luchich and Mickey Featherstone were actually outside the bar, and they saw him coming out on the stretcher. And – Luchich later on would actually say that his best memory that he ever had with Eddie Comiskey was from just a few weeks previous on the 4th uh, of July. They're sitting there drinking, you know, and Comiskey gets up and slaps him on the shoulder and goes, well, you know what, Tony? We'll have to do this again next uh, next centennial. No. So it's like, they, they were, you know, he was he was a buddy, and it's like, that's got, you know, even though you're both scumbags, <laughs> they're real. It's got to suck. You they're kind of real people. Yeah, you, you yeah. humanize them a little bit, you know. And... Yeah. Okay. So the <laughs> so the guy that uh, the bartender identified him, the the shooter, and it was all from a picture that Jackie Coonan uh, took and showed the bartender. It was like, all right, who did it? Was yeah. it one of these guys? Obviously not this one. That's me. I wasn't here. Yeah, I'm yeah, asking yeah. you the questions. You know. <laughs> No, no, no. It wasn't him or him or him or him. But which one? Nothing like homegrown investigation. Don't talk to the cops. But when I come up talking, 
You better be answering. And yeah. that's exactly how it was. It's like, you don't talk to the fucking cops. You talk to us. Exactly. So then after this, Kamuski being, being killed, Jimmy Kaminsky. Ah, Kaminsky. You said Kaminsky. Well, it's Kamuski. Kamuski, Kaminsky. It's oh, okay. I was like, what? And you know what? Come in, I th- I th- come in, Miski. As much as I thought this guy's a Polak, he's not. No. Kamiski is an Irish name. <laughs> it's like, no fucking shit. Yeah, there's no I in the end of it. No. Or, like, no. Y at the very end. It's S K E Y. So yeah. I was like, huh, no shit. I thought it was Polish or, you know, but you no. Prick. If you look at him, he's got a big old fucking potato head on him, so. Yeah. Not all of us can have perfectly, like, shaped heads. Dude, kid. he's a scary motherfucker. He was scary looking, yes. So after. Uh, him being killed, Jimmy asks Featherstone again. Well, he asks him to meet meet him at the Skyline Motor Inn to discuss business. Business. After Kamoski's murder, Jimmy asks Mickey Featherstone to meet him at the Skyline Motor Inn, and this was when, for the second time, Jimmy asks Mickey to join him in his Lone Shark operation because. Mickey or Jimmy realized that hey, Eddie's gone now. I need someone that's gonna watch my back. Yeah, dude, I need an enforcer, and he's gonna ha- and someone's loyal to me. And the reason that he th- that he needed this is because Eddie Comiskey was a Mickey Spillane guy. Mm. Tom Devaney, who was also killed right around the same time, was a Mickey Spillane guy. But those were both guys who had switched loyalties to working with Jimmy Coonan. So he thinks with these two guys getting fucking killed, somebody's coming after him. He doesn't see that... Because Mickey Spillane, after Eddie Comiskey went went down, Mickey Spillane went into hiding. Yeah. Because he's like, I'm next. I'm, I'm not dealing with this shit. So the power dynamic in the whole neighborhood shifted. Yeah, the yeah. whole vacuum. And then there's always one person. Yeah. That's right there, ready for to take it. And, uh... So he asks, so Jimmy tells him, listen, hey, you know, I, I need protection. need you to help protect me. Help help me. Be my, my bodyguard. And he he's like, well, I can't say no. Yeah. You know, because, well, Jimmy was his friend. Yep. And he also promised them to pay him $150 a week, <laughs> which, I mean, for that time, I guess, is pretty damn good yeah, money. Yeah, but for the shit you're doing, 150 bucks a week is shit money. <laughs> Well, so their, their new routine would be Coonan driving in from Jersey on Wednesday afternoons. Usually he'd pick Mickey up at his apartment and they'd end up going over to Tony Luch's Luchich's apartment. And most of the time there was another neighborhood guy there named Andy Wheeler, who, uh, who was, uh, who was a oh, fucking hell, who was a racketeer that worked as their controller and uh, was another one of the old guard that had switched alliances from Spillane over to, to Coonan. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Coonan would like bust this guy's balls constantly because at one point in time him and a bunch of other dudes had actually kidnapped Andy Wheeler and held him for ransom. They what the hell's with all the kidnapping? <laughs> hey, I'm gonna kidnap you and hold you for ransom. Okay. How much money are you worth? Five bucks? Shit. Well they they tied Wheeler to a chair and called Mickey Spillane and told him, quote, if you don't come up with five grand, we're gonna put air conditioning in this motherfucker's head. Spillane was told it hot that time of the year? <laughs> I don't know. Probably really hot. So, like, you know, we're going to cool him off. And Spillane told him, hey, you do what you got to do. And uh, Jimmy, I guess every time Jimmy Coonan told this story, he'd just laugh his balls off. 
Like, he thought it was the funniest thing in the world, and I'm guessing Andy Wheeler was probably like, <laughs> yeah, it's not that funny. Yeah, dude, I almost died, and you kidnapped me for yeah. ransom, and my old boss didn't give a fuck about me. And and that's why he switched alliances over to Jimmy Coonan, because he's like, I bet if, if Mickey Spillane kidnapped me, Jimmy Coonan's going to fuck him up, you know? Mm, maybe. Do what you got to do, kid. So while they're in, in Luchich's apartment, they would... Uh, Jimmy Coonan would usually be handed like a series of envelopes that would be, you know, this is the loan shark money, this is the peer money, this is the numbers money, gambling money, Drug you know, money. yada, yada, yada. The whole thing with the peer came from something that Jimmy had actually cooked up himself where he was extorting the International Longshoremen's Association. Jesus. So that's kind of a, kind of a big deal. Yeah. Because he got into it with uh, was it, uh, Tommy Collins. Right, I believe I, it's who that what I don't remember if it was Collins or Devaney because there's Deva- well, yeah, because he, he he kind of because he would bring because one of the two sick fuckers there I can't remember which one he the part of the Houdini Act became that the bags of the body parts they would actually bring them to um the little the island the in the island, East River, yeah, yeah, and then they would he would basically flush them down. Well, before he flushed them. He would actually want to see the he wants the head. Yeah, that that's that's where when they start talking like working with the Italians. But you're on the right track, I think. But the problem with this fucking story is there's like four Jimmys, there's a couple of Mickeys, there's a half a dozen goddamn Tommies. Hard to fucking keep track of these assholes. Dude, it's a usual name. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're all fucking Irish. They got Catholic names and shit. You know? That doesn't mean shit. Well, it's also the time. Yeah, dude. Totally. Yeah. So, but you know, this is so. This is the seventy six to seventy seven period, and he uh, Mickey, Jimmy's consolidating his power because Mickey's, as Kevin said, basically flown the fucking coup. Yeah, Mickey Spillane, I think at this point in time Gone. was like ready to retire as it was. He's he like, didn't need any more money. He's got kids, you know. Also, didn't want to be a target. Probably didn't want to no, die. No, because no. as Mister Hire said, having everybody you know close to him be either kidnapped, killed beat up whatever it's like okay or, or leave him yeah it's like one of those things it's like uh the writing's on the wall it's time for me to leave you know no one wants me here people that are close to me are leaving so you know what see ya he wanted to do the oni madden thing but i think he waited too long like where he wanted to go okay i'm out and just leave but i think he he would mickey spillane waited too but long i think it's problem t- i think it would have been a little harder for him though because of his kids. Oh, it definitely. I, I don't think you he would have left his kids. I think he would have taken no, his whole saying, family. No, but I'm saying uprooting your kids and your wife, you know, I mean. Matter oh, of life or death, you pack your shit and get the fuck out, you know. True. <laughs> well, he kind of thought, you know, moving to Jersey was, you know, far enough away. Yeah, no. <laughs> As we know. That Obligatory jo- uh, Jersey joke. <laughs> uh, the armpit of the United States. <laughs> I was going to go there. Eh, why not? Strong. Roswell, New Mexico is apparently the asshole, so. Different show I listen to. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Hurry up. Uh, so after after collecting the money from Luchich, uh, Featherstone and Coonan would drive around and they'd collect debts at their regular stops, including the Market Diner, the 596 Club, which why, you know, he's collecting money from his own business. I got a feeling there's some laundering going on there. Um, oh, not at all. Maybe but because, little... you know, he didn't own it. Right. Technically. The Sunbright Bar, Donald Malley's Candy Store. Uh, really? Wh- the candy store? Uh, they That's had... like taking candy from a baby. And, uh... and, and remember, <laughs> huh? 
little little side note remember that store yeah um they, they had fronts everywhere for shit um you kind of had to a, a guy named uh, uh william whoopie meyer uh, who owned a <laughs> baker uh, an auto garage that makes no sense and one of one of carl mazella's uh, pr- uh produce stands in the neighborhood most of their most of the time that wasn't any issues getting these money from people probably because they're just so used to it now they're so jaded like oh okay it's yeah. time of the month um one, two, three, five. here you go here's your money see ya do you want anything no cool get out but if there was ever an issue featherstone and coonan were both carrying constantly no way um but i mean i also <laughs> i also wonder with this whole thing if you know giving money was it's it's a a pain in the ass and everything because you're losing your income but also at the same time it's one of those things of well yeah i give this but i also know nobody's gonna fuck with me it's Dangeld. you're paying the people that will destroy your shit to not destroy your shit well no <laughs> but, but also <laughs> so, nobody else sources. is gonna fuck with you exactly shit. like at this time there's probably some other gangs that are coming in like there was those jersey boys yeah that we talked about in episode one of this there's probably, you know... The Italians to, are starting to creep in a little. The Dominicans, because that came in. You know, mm-hmm. there was, like, it doesn't matter. Like, if it's not just the Westies, there's probably, like you were saying, Kevin H., that there's more gangs or just more people that are willing to come in and throw a shit fit or just do whatever they can to get a little bit of money out of you. Yeah, because, like, you know, they're like, hey, listen, you're going to fucking pay us money. And they're like, nah, I don't think so. You know, and all I do is get on the phone or, you know, hey, like, Jimmy... Hey, or Mickey, these two fucking assholes just came in here not too long ago. You know, what do they look like? You know, this, that. Yeah. Okay. They're going to kick the shit out of them. Now, like, one of the situations that I thought was kind of funny was one day when they went to Whoopi Meyer's uh, garage to collect money, he refused to pay him. And Jimmy said something to the effect of, like, listen, just because your brother's a fucking cop doesn't mean I won't come back here and kill you in your garage. <laughs> and he paid him pretty pretty quickly, you know? It's probably own part of the cops. Yeah. But, I mean, somebody goes, listen, I don't give a fuck who you're related to. You're going to pay me or I'm going to kill you. Motherfucker, you realize what I've done in the past? You realize who I've fucked with? Yeah. I'll so, kidnap you. So Mickey Featherstone learned his role pretty quickly in the crew. Um Somebody doesn't pay Jimmy Coonan, you beat the fuck out of him. Uh, one time, uh, when he was with uh, Coonan, Tom Devaney, and Tommy Hess, they went into a bar called Polly's Cage. Uh, there's a construction worker in there that owed Jimmy money. Uh, Coonan had actually been warned that the guy was what they called a beat artist, which was somebody that would borrow money and never pay it back. They'd take off, whatever. Oh, he's one of those guys. Yeah, one of those assholes. So the four guys enter the bar. Featherstone and Hess go to the back to... You know, keep an eye on everything. Coonan and Devaney grab this guy and take him out behind the bar. And uh, Mickey went around the side of the building to see what's going on. And Devaney's got the guy by the collar of his shirt. He's got his pistol wrapped in a newspaper and he's just beating him in the face with it. Hammering him. <laughs> Could you imagine the sound of that? <laughs> that thud? Ugh. Even if you're wrapped up in a newspaper, like the lessen the blow a little bit and not be uh-huh. as abrasive with the metal. Yeah, it's just beating this dude in the face. Um, this was actually a fairly common thing that they would do. And another thing they would do is they would just, somebody doesn't want to pay up, they'd just jam a loaded gun in your mouth. They didn't care if they broke teeth or not, just pay us. Yeah. And they'd get their money pretty quickly. Kind of shitty. Yeah. So most of these midweek <clears throat> midweek rounds would end back at uh, 
either the Skyline Lounge or Jimmy's Bar, the 596. He'd meet up with his lower-level loan sharks, uh, the guys who would actually borrow money from him to loan out to other people. Many of the other cast of characters in this bar would be Billy Beatty, Nick the Greek Cagabines, and Tommy Collins, a man that Coonan had actually fired at from the top of that rooftop we talked about in the first episode of this. Yes. You gonna join me? Fuck you! Blah, 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 blah! Now? I'll be right up. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Thank you for not hitting me. Thank you for graduating from the Star Wars School of Shooting. Well, he, he was probably also that, you know, the same thing as uh, Eddie and all the others. Have, well, they saw the writing on the wall with yeah. Mickey Spillane. Mickey's gone. Like, yeah, Mickey's a fucking useless. You know, we're not making any money with him. I'm not going to go to anyone else, so I might as well join another atta- another uh, Irishman. So, Nor should his son do that 401k retirement thing. <laughs> so dumb. Uh, so Billy Beatty would, a lot of the time he would sit there and just bitch and complain about the guys that were borrowing money from him. Um, a guy named Jimmy McElroy, who was actually a former boxer, was one of his borrowers. And Coonan told, Be- uh, told Beatty, if he was having such a problem with this guy, it's time to, quote, tighten up or lay back. Uh, tighten back or lay up. Jimmy said this quite a bit, and it pretty much meant that if you can't get the money from your customers, you need to make them pay you or come up with the money yourself. Yeah. It's grow a set and get it or stop being a bitch. Yeah. Or you fucking just pay me instead. Yeah. So Mickey would, a lot of the time, he would just kind of sit there and watch Jimmy work just in amazement at like his organization skills and how brutal he'd actually really become over the, over the course of time where he was in jail and didn't, didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Well, there's no one there to oppose you. Guess what? All that power go- has to go somewhere, right to their head. Exactly. So we're, let's jump ahead a little bit up to uh, October 28th of 1976. So moving into 1977, Coonan and Featherstone pretty much ran the neighborhood. Uh, and as we as we said before, after Kamiski was killed, Spillane went into hiding. Jimmy Coonan got so powerful that no other criminal in the neighborhood would even consider doing anything illegal in Hell's Kitchen unless they cleared it with him first. So That is some fucking kingpin power shit right there. Exactly. At this point in time, Jimmy is starting to move forward. Hmm. Bring, bring. Bring, bring. Yeah. Hey, uh, Jimmy? Yeah? Are you okay if I jaywalk? <laughs> no. Okay. Use the fucking crosswalk, you asshole. <laughs> okay, thank, thank you. I'll, um, I'll give you your money later. Click. Just think about it. Just think <laughs> it's about it. It's funny to think about it that way, actually. Anything illegal? Dude, that means if you want to push your drugs, if you want to jack a car, if you yep. want to strip a car, if you want to rob somebody. Fuck, man, even if you want to just intimidate somebody or get into a fight. Yeah. That is some high-level shit. And, like, I know I made a joke about the, the jaywalking thing, but still, that is some fucking high-level shit to be, like, own a neighborhood so tightly that no matter what happens, it has to be clear you. To control you. the entire thing. Yeah, and that means also if the cops come through, like, they have to be worried about whatever's going to happen because they're also on the watch list, too. Yeah. Because during this time, cops, you know, did some shady shit, and they were also on the take. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. So it was at this point in time that Jimmy starts putting feelers out to the Italians to see if maybe, just maybe, they'd be willing to work with us. 
because traditionally your Italians and your Irish didn't work together. No, man, they always they, butted heads. Different yeah. styles, you know, selective way of doing things. Well, for example, like the we'll we'll talk about it in a bit though. Like the Italians were so well organized and they did things a specific way. And it's been done for so long. Exactly. And the Irish were fucking cowboys. They were just out there just through the streets. They didn't give a fuck, you know. And and they were working at the time they were working with Mickey Spillane. Wow. You know, because they were trying to work with Mickey and he didn't want anything to do with it. Because Mickey Spillane was still that old that like old Old guard guard where he goes, No. Fuck you Italians. I'm gonna apologize for this. Fuck you, Guineas. This is our turf. Yeah. What were them? They'd be like, you dumb fucking mix. And I'm an Irish, so I can say this. Like, don't you realize what we're trying to do? Like, you could totally see it because everyone has their own way of doing things. And if- but they but they still worked together. They still had some. But the trust was, you know, not there was there, there was no trust. But I they, think, yeah, there was a common truce, I want to say. Not really a truce, but a uh, an agreement. Yes. Yeah. We go to here and then you go to the same spot. There's a slight overlap. This is where, you know, it's neutral ground. But as soon as you cross those fucking tracks, you're done. And Mickey, I mean, Jimmy knew that, you know, hey, if I want to take a next step, I'm going to have to get in with these guys and try to take away that um, from Mickey so that, you know, he doesn't have it anymore because he's fucking gone. So fuck it. So a lot of the crew, including Mickey Featherstone at this point, really starting to wonder why Coonan wants to start working with the Italians. Mickey didn't have the same kind of ambition as Coonan did for stuff. Jimmy had these huge, just grandiose plans to take over. Like, he wanted to take over the fucking city and all these mm. rackets and shit. And uh, Featherstone, most of the other guys were content to have the money to just spend on booze, girls, and one of Mickey Featherstone's favorite money pits, cocaine. Do you think that Jimmy Coonan was so hell-bent on joining the Italians and being a part of the Italians and doing what they did was because of a popular film that came out in 72? The Godfather? And... Oh. That that, that film will come up later. <laughs> so I'm like, we're, we're getting close to that time. We're in 76. Godfather came out in 72. Mm-hmm. And that was the film to watch along with another one. Hmm. Makes you go, hmm. Hmm. People mimicking what they see in movies. So, uh, Mickey had a very different mindset where, in his thoughts, where as long as nobody's moving in on our racket, on our turf, why should we branch out into theirs? Why should we start, you know, trying to move in on somebody else? Why work with outsiders? We're Irish. We work together. We don't need to work with the fucking Italians, you know? Yeah, we're family. And... Coonan had always really looked up to like the Italian wise guys that he'd see in the neighborhood. Their organization structure was a huge thing that he really liked. Their and their self-imposed system of accountability, kind of. And Jimmy thought that if he could move in with these guys and bring his guys with him, that were so known for being brutal, violent, just fucking crazy, that he thought that those two relationships would work really well. Especially because you have a more organized organization 
and a more violent organization. You move the two together, and you have a very organized, violent organization, kind of, you know? Yeah, keep the wild dogs on a short leash. Exactly. And he thought that working with the Italians would actually, like, stabilize his guys and keep them... More money, too. Exactly. That's the main thing. Money was... Money's key to everything. Yes. And that's kind of more of, you know, what it was, I, I think, for for Jimmy, was... He All wanted about the, the money. money. Yeah. Money and power, baby. So let's take a so quick got the power. Let's take a quick break here. The Dark Windows Podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a subscription video on-demand service with thousands of in-depth videos taught by the world's greatest professors. You'll always have something fascinating to learn about. With categories ranging from history to travel, there's something for everyone. The courses I'm personally looking forward to checking out are the 36-part series on the Vikings and the 24-part series The Agency, A History of the CIA. If you go to ageofradio.org forward slash darkwindows, there's an offer to get The Great Courses Plus for 14 days free. Stay ahead in life. Start your access today with 11,000 plus video and audio lectures on a range of topics. Now, let's get back to the show. So on the morning of May 5th, 1977, Billy Beattie picked up Jimmy and they went to do a little shopping. The Ooh. first part of the shopping started off at a place called the Food Town Supermarket. Jimmy sent Billy in. And this is some, like, complete Dexter shit that they're doing right now. This, this is like, you know, Jimmy had like, a, had, like, a grocery list. and But this wasn't a good grocery list. This was... You know, a very strange yeah. grocery list. Oh, they had to get Brussels sprouts, kill Robbie. What the hell is that? Kill Robbie? Yeah. I've heard of that. Uh, it's a weird vegetable, like, root thing. It's horrible. Like, kimchi. Gotta get that probiotic for the tummies. Kimchi can go fuck itself. That's a weird. Rotten cabbage. Well, I like th- cabbage. That's the thing is, I like sauerkraut. Kimchi is fucking disgusting. No. Yeah. So Jimmy sent Billy in to buy three boxes of jumbo-sized plastic garbage bags. Then they went to Manhattan, where they stopped at a hardware store on Ninth Avenue. Now this is where I was like, a fucking hardware store sells this shit? What the hell? Because none of our hardware stores sell this stuff. Back in, back in the fucking sixties and seventies, you could buy guns at hardware stores, you know. That's true. So. Jimmy went in to the store and picked up an assortment of kitchen knives, which included one butcher knife, an 18-inch steak knife with serrated edge, and a small fillet knife. Jimmy picked up the fillet knife and looked at Billy and said, This one, you need this one to take off tattoos, birthmarks, and anything that's going to make it possible to identify the body. Now, this shows either how messed up Jimmy really was in the head he was proficient or, how yeah. creative he was creative most people use a cheese grater well, or you have to remember who taught him this stuff I mean yeah or it's just you know how how ingenuitive he was to, I was going to say to, to think of hey you know you take this this fillet knife and you can do some really intricate work with it Eddie Comiskey taught him how to do all this shit and Eddie Comiskey was a butcher's apprentice so he knew all about like well he wasn't a butcher's apprentice he was a uh, he learned yeah he, he was he was a butcher's apprentice in prison but, well, yeah, he was a right. butcher's apprentice. Well, I mean, that's where he wor- learned butchering. I, yeah, yeah. I, so um, so after doing all their shopping, 
they went to the 596 Club for a while. And then Billy drove Jimmy to the Eon Club to pick up Rudy Stein, where they were going to bring him to, back to the 596 Club and kill him. Because that yeah. was the plan. That's, they had this all this whole thing worked out. You know, because they're like, well, how, how are you going to get him here? He's like, Jimmy's like, don't worry about it. I got it worked out. I'm going to call him up, you know, tell him, hey, I got to talk to you. So, um, so Jimmy's motive for killing Ruby was that he felt Ruby was behind Kamuski and De, uh, Devaney being taken out. And One of the motives. Well, yes. And... He also admitted that he had um, owed Jimmy some uh, Ruby somewhere around seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, the, the almighty dollar is the primary. Yeah, but also <laughs> it was it was also because of the little black book that Ruby had, which had an assortment of um, of names in it that owed Ruby a lot of goddamn money. So Ruby, you know, Jimmy's like, if I get this book. I can get all that damn money. Yeah, well, if anybody knows anything about numbers runners or accountants, they always have some sort of file or some sort of way to keep their money in their you know organization on t- on lock. So that way they could always look. Okay, page three. So and so owes me this much. I gave this person this much. So that way they're always on lock because you don't want to keep that much information in your brain. It's almost damn near impossible. And another no. thing with this little black book was the way Coonan looked at it was. They owe Ruby this money, but if I have the book, they owe me the money, right? Exactly. Which is not how it fucking works, Jimmy, but, you know. Kind of does. That's true. If you take out the man that owns the book. It's not how it works legally. It's how it works in the underworld. (laughs) But if you take out the man that owns the book, guess what? Now you own the money. That's fair enough. True. Book. So they they had picked up Ruby and then they dropped him off at the uh, Del Soma restaurant but didn't stay around. They went back to the 596 Club. Building an alibi. Um, where Jimmy uh, dropped off Billy and told him he would be back with Ruby in 10 minutes and just to get the crew all set up. So in 10 minutes time, Jimmy was back. And apparently Jimmy Coonan was a very like precise man when it came to like I will be there in seven minutes and he was there bam when he said he was going to be there so I appreciate that so it wasn't like oh we'll be back in 10 minutes and they show up in fucking you know 25 minutes it was oh, no one likes anybody that's late true well sometimes sometimes being late pays off for the better true. we'll talk about that in a minute I don't know man I'm obsessed with being at places on time or early so they walked into the bar Jimmy and Ruby and when they walked in, Billy, who had been pretending to be at a payphone, pulled the shades and locked the door yep. behind them. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> Jimmy told Ruby to take a seat at the bar and that he'd be right back. He went out. And, of course, the only people back. in this bar are Coonan's dudes. So yep. you've got, again, you got, like, your Billy Beatty. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, Tommy Hess behind the bar working the bar. And Richie Ryan is just kind of sitting down in the bar drinking, you know. He's a customer, quote-unquote, you know. Yep. So you have no witnesses here. No. It's everybody. It's all of Jimmy's crew. Exactly. There's one more guy there that's also there that Ruby doesn't know is there. Right. This guy named Danny Garillo. He comes 
as Ruby's sitting down at the bar, doesn't even get to the, actually order, probably orders a drink, but doesn't even get to sit down at the bar. Danny Grillo comes bursting out from the back of the kitchen and fired six shots at Ruby. You think he said something fun like, surprise, motherfucker? <laughs> well, the, the only thing that I got out of the whole situation was that Danny Grillo jumped out of the kitchen in just his fucking underwear. Well, you and, want to get blood on your nice clothes, Exactly. Kid? And Ruby Stein's, the only thing he said was, oh, my God. And then Danny Grillo just starts fucking firing. This is before the Tide sticks to get out the, like, the <laughs> red, red wine. <laughs> what? Jesus <laughs> Christ. Dude, they didn't know about club soda and baking soda. Well, maybe they did. Dude, he, he was Italian. Know. His mom had ways to get fucking stains out of clothes. I guarantee yeah. it. Okay, gotta get that, mom, got to get that gravy out of this. Danny, this is not gravy. This is blood. Mom, it's gravy. Human marinara sauce. <laughs> so Griot shoots him six times with a 32 caliber automatic. Uh, he hit him in the chest and arms and leg. Ruby went down, and once down, Tommy has stepped um, outside to stand guard. Once down, Jimmy looked at Billy and said, Go ahead. Pull a bullet in him. Jimmy didn't ask any questions. He pulled out his twenty-two caliber with a silencer on it and shot Ruby in the face. Yeah. And then nodded toward and then Jimmy nodded toward Richie Ryan. And Billy handed him the pistol and Richie Ryan yep. did the same exact thing. It made the rounds. Yep. So this all made them accomplices. Right. So kind of like the same thing with Mickey where hey, you know, well, whether a, culpable. he did it or not. You know, this kind of like putting it on to them. Yeah, you know, you're part of this now, motherfuckers. Ha ha. And and let's let's not forget to mention that the most powerful loan shark, most likely in the country, is now dead mm-hmm. on the dirty ass floor of Jimmy Coonan's nightclub. Yeah. <laughs> so they put the body in plastic bags, and then that they had purchased earlier. Um, when doing so. The little black book or a little wad of bills fell out of, uh, out of Ruby's. I think they said out of his shoe or something. Yeah, yeah. And I want your shoe money, Michael. (laughs) Jimmy picks it up, tosses it on a bar, and basically says, "Split it five ways." Yep. They then dragged Ruby's body back to the ladies' room, and Jimmy and Richie Ryan. They write down all the phone numbers that were in Ruby's black book. No. But Richie Ryan does help him cut yeah. up the body, though. Then they proceed to cut up his body and put it into plastic bags. When they're done, they brought all the body parts to the East River and dump it in with the bags into the water. I, all of them. Boom. I did find a quote that kind of made me a little queasy from that from when they were cutting up the body, where uh, Coonan says to Richie Ryan, this here, the elbow, this is the toughest part to get through. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's not. You just got to bend it right back a little bit, and then there's, a, like, a little tendon. You clip that, clip that a little more, bend it back, and then all of a sudden, once you get all the tendons and ligaments right there... Yeah. I mean, the, like a, a shoulder socket's easier to get through than an elbow, though. Yeah, you're fine. So, Ruby's now gone, Yep. and Jimmy now has the names. Yeah. So, do you think that they use the plastic bags as a tax write-off because it's a business <laughs> expense? <laughs> Maybe. I would love to see them claim that on their taxes. What did you buy these trash bags for? <clears throat> I got a lot of garbage to take care of, bro. Construction. <laughs> Deconstruction, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, uh, we need them at the bar. Okay. Yeah. Well, the body, they take it out, put it in the back of the truck, go dump it. And within an hour, I think it was, they had 
all the blood cleaned up out of the ladies' yeah. room. Everything looked spick and span, and people were inside the bar drinking. So then, eight days later, a little something else happens. Yeah. On May 15th of 1977, Jimmy gets an early Christmas present slash birthday present. Yeah. Is it Hot Pockets? Yeah, yeah. Well, what? Well, no. <laughs> so, on May 13th of 1977, Mickey Spillane is sitting in his living room watching TV with his sons. Gets a phone call at his apartment. And uh, goes over and answers it. Well, didn't his son... Now, on the, vi- on the video I saw, his son... He his son said that he answered it. You know that's the so thing is like I was like the, um, the video said that, but the book said that Mickey answered it. I mean, and I mean that 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 whole video thing like where there was a couple of them. There was a lot of weird shit that didn't match up to the book. Yeah, but I mean this is his son talking, you know, about his dad and you know how he looked up to his dad, loved his dad, and he's like, you know, hey, you know, gets a phone call. Hey, Dad, you know, someone's on the phone and they want to talk to you. They said they're a friend. Yeah. So he, he gets this phone call. A few minutes later, he hears a car horn honk outside of his house. So he tells his kids, hey, stay right here. I'll be right back. Goes outside, sees a car that he recognizes, walks up to it, and as he approaches it, doesn't recognize the driver. Turns out that driver was uh, Gambino family member Roy DeMeo, who proceeded to roll the window down and shoot Mickey Spillane five times in the head and chest. Um, left him to die. Left him, Yeah, just left him bleeding to death on the curb in front of his house where his kids were sitting. Well, his well, his uh, two, what, two boys, his yeah. oldest boy and then the middle boy or whatever, are sitting on the couch waiting for him to come back. Yep. And he never returns. Now, there's a lot of speculation that this was done simply as a favor to Jimmy Coonan, but... I don't think so. There's also a lot that goes into it where this also could have been some kind of retribution for Mickey didn't want to work with the Italians during the building of the Jacob Javits Convention Center, which was being built on the west side of Manhattan, and the Italians desperately wanted in. Spillane said they couldn't get any part of the action unless it was as a junior partner, so that would have been like... Your construction companies aren't going to work here, but we'll deal with your suppliers. Mm. Shit like that. You know, we're not going to pay you directly. We're going to... Or if they were helping out, it was menial jobs, nothing serious. Right. Like, here, come sweep the floors for about 20 minutes, because we don't want to deal with it or clean the shit out of the bathrooms. So, like we said before, Spillane never, was never a huge fan of working with the Italians, especially the Gambinos and the Genoveses, because those were the... The two like heavy bigger hitters. names, yeah. Those are the I, heavy hitters of the time. I also wonder maybe it was also retaliation because you know they never forgave him for the uh, snatching Zaccardi and making him disappear. Like we said, they they hold a fucking grudge, so that could have been it could have been it. threefold, yeah. Yeah, it could have been you know all those things in one, you know, or they or they fucking didn't really give a shit about Zaccardi and they're like hell with it, yeah. you know. This is the bigger or bigger that piece Mickey of the was a Mick. And they were Italians, as we talked about before. Yeah. There's, nobody knows unless you're that person in the car or the person they gave out the hit. So, with Spillane out of the picture, Jimmy Coonan basically has got a fucking rocket strapped to his back. He's just right up the food chain. Mm-hmm. He'd been on the move for, like, he'd been on the move up for a while. With Mickey Spillane dead, Jimmy Coonan is the king of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. 
And Mickey Spillane was like the kind of like the last of that generation of, as they refer to him, quote, gentlemen gangsters, where they were going to come after your money. They weren't going to hurt you, even though Mickey Spillane would have you kidnapped and have the shit kicked at you. So back to Ruby Stein for a minute. Um, just a little, like a few days after he was killed, uh, Mickey Featherstone actually ran into Jimmy Coonan and he could tell that Coonan was was clearly upset about something. And Coonan proceeded to tell him that uh, Ruby's torso had washed up on Rockaway Beach in Queens. Well, it wasn't a few days. It was six months. Was it? Six oh, months shit. Well, okay. Okay. So six months after yeah. his, his body, his not his body, just his, well, his torso. His body, technically. Yes. His torso yeah. washes ashore on Rockaway Beach in Brooklyn. And the, the police, they attempted to investigate, but with no witnesses and not being able to identify the body or the torso. Well... Um, they kind of had to shut the case down, but they always suspected that Jimmy was yeah. behind it. And they did identify the body because he had a scar from a recent heart surgery. That's and that true. was the yes. only identifier that they had on him. Yes, that is true. I'm sorry. It is but true because they knew that that was Ruby from that. Jimmy. But he was pissed. Jimmy was pissed. He was pissed off because he fucked up. He yeah. told him, he's like, Mickey, if I had, if I had opened him up, if I had, uh, Punctured, punctured his, his lungs, punctured his stomach, punctured it, punctured his his organs and his intestines and all that. It would have sunk. He wouldn't have come back up. Yeah, water would have the, went in there and weighted it down. Exactly, because if not, you have the, all those gases that build yeah, up. The bloat. Yeah. Ugh. Mickey was kind of upset when he found out that Ruby had been killed because he never had a problem with the guy. Mm. Um, Jimmy had actually a few years ago tasked uh, Mickey and his brother Jackie with going in and, and killing Ruby. But they they didn't want to do it, so they. I really think they had common sense enough to go. If we kill this guy, we're fucking dead. So they basically just went and hung out at his bar for a couple of months, every few nights, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we, we never we didn't see we you know didn't see him, didn't see him. So, and actually, another thing that made Mickey a little upset was when when uh, Ruby had found out that Mickey and his wife were expecting a child. He told him he was going to send him a case of Don Perignon, which is mega fucking expensive champagne still today yeah so he was uh he was kind of sad when he's like oh well well, that sucks that ruby's gone but you know i understand his business so jimmy coonan sitting in the car ranting and raving about oh there's going to be an investigation i've already had a detective out to my house in new jersey to talk to me about all this shit because i was the last one seen with him and now we're going to have all these cops nosing around Hell's Kitchen trying to figure out what's going on with Ruby. So Mickey had a concern that not only would the cops be poking around, but so would the Italians because Ruby worked very, very closely with, I believe it was all five, <clears throat> all, all five of the crime families and mm-hmm. of the Italian families. And Featherstone was pissed off because he thought, this is a stupid idea. Why the fuck did you do this? And as pissed off as he was, he still couldn't, you know, he couldn't bring himself to go, Jimmy, you fucked up, and I'm not being involved with this anymore. That's like a real loyal friend right there. Y- yeah. Like, knowing full well everything that's going on, because Mickey was a smart guy, mm-hmm. and knowing that this was happening, and also he could see the writing on the wall and all stuff, but yet he's still like, I gotta do what I gotta do. Yep. I'm, I'm with him till the end. So, in December of 1977, NYPD intelligence officer, uh, Richie Egan, the guy that we mentioned before, 
was sitting in a, was sitting in a parking lot across from the market diner listening to the radio with his partner when a brand new Cadillac pulls up to the front of the bar. They recognized the blonde-haired Jimmy Coonan, but the other guy, who was about the same height but a little bit thinner, they didn't really recognize at first because every time they had seen Mickey Featherstone, he'd had scraggly, nasty fucking hair. He's dressing like a construction worker. And now you get this guy that's clean cut, getting out, wearing a suit, and they're like, who the hell is who this the, guy? Exactly, who the hell is this guy? It's like when I shave my beard and you guys don't really know what the hell's going on. <laughs> and then, you know, they thought was, ah, I, I, this guy's nothing. Then they look into his record and uh, they were like, oh shit. <laughs> so the reason I go into this is because from this point forward, wherever Coonan and Featherstone were to go, Egan is... It, Egan and his partner were sure to follow. They tracked these guys for years. That takes some determination, too, not to get burnt out. Also, it takes the department to have some understanding of what's going on for them to be like, all right, well, we'll keep backing you, but you better show results. Because if after a while they don't show any results, they may take them off the case and be like, "It's you're wasting our time, wasting money. Another thing is to do that for that long and not get made in a neighborhood where everybody knows everybody. Is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you it, know? Was, it was like another, uh, what is it, another two, like three, four years or something like that, that, that he, yeah, it's like three or four years that that he actually is, I don't know, surveilling them yeah. and everything. Yeah, they put a lot school. of, they put a lot of time into it. So Jimmy Coonan actually got pretty heavily involved with, uh, with an Italian guy named Roy DeMeo. Uh, who was part of the Gambino crime family. You want to get into that? The speculation is that Coonan and DeMeo had been in cahoots for some time and that DeMeo, like we said before, DeMeo had killed Spillane as a favor. And uh, DeMeo had, had something in common with one of Coonan's former associates uh, that as when, when Roy DeMeo was growing up, and anybody listening on Justin's feed will know this by now if you listen to the DeMeo episodes, Roy DeMeo growing up worked in a butcher shop when he was a kid. So he was real handy with a knife. He knew what he was doing. So him and um, Eddie Comiskey were in the same city doing the same thing at the same time. So it's like convergent timelines. And then all of a sudden you've got Comiskey. He's gone. And Roy DeMeo keeps going. And then he just kind of intervenes with Jimmy Coonan. So he's still got a guy that can hack people up. It's really on, weird. It's like they met on Craigslist or something. Right. <laughs> do you enjoy cutting people up? Why, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, meet me at Area Undisclosed. <laughs> we can cut up people together. Looking for a fellow Houdini artist. So, Coonan uh, told DeMeo and, uh, and his partner Danny Grillo, who was the guy that actually shot and killed Ruby Stein, that anything they needed from the boys in Hell's Kitchen... All theirs, just ask us. Whatever you need. So Mickey Featherstone, on the other hand, didn't like this idea at all. He didn't trust the Italians nearly as much as Jimmy Coonan did. He was also getting more and more worried about Spillane's death. Um, he wasn't a huge, like, Mickey Spillane supporter, but he respected the guy. Yeah. And he was worried that Coonan would become the prime suspect for his murder. And if Coonan's a, a suspect... He's so is Mickey suspect, by yeah. association, you know? Yeah. Well, Mickey also had respect for Spillane due to the fact of when there was that 
killing of one of his guys. Yeah. And Mickey went up to Splane to tell him, he's like, point blank, even though he had a gun on him, hey, man, this is what happened. I'm sorry. It was an accident. And Splane's like, don't worry about it. Go home. We'll take care of it. Yep. We'll see you later. If it tells you the kind of guy Mickey that uh, Mickey Featherstone was, he actually called uh, Mickey Spillane's brother-in-law, who uh, his name was Jim McManus, who was a, a, a political figure in the area of Hell's Kitchen. That we had talked about uh, last episode. Of, yeah. He was the, because he took over for his father. Right. So he told him, he says, I just want you to know, I had nothing to do with Mickey getting killed. And McManus, like, McManus is like, okay, I, I can appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty and being forthcoming and all that. Cool. We're good. Mm-hmm. So Mickey Featherstone, for as much of a piece of shit as he really was, Get not a necessarily a bad guy. Exactly. The police got their first kind of big shot at taking these guys down. They got their hands on a CI, which is a confidential informant. And uh, this guy had been recently arrested for beating up his girlfriend. The intelligence department pulled the kid from the rest of the precinct and kind of like gave him a choice. They're like, listen, we can let you go. You end up back in the neighborhood. Take your chances. Maybe somebody finds out that we talked to you and you end up dead. Or maybe you help us and we can help you. you know? Come to work for us. He told So he told them he would only cooperate if they gave him 24-hour protection and the the lead investigator in the intelligence division's like I don't fucking think so that's not going to happen so he ended up caving in and just going okay fine I'll help you so they provided him with $100 to make one of his payments uh, one of his loan shark payments and uh, while he was making this payment he's ordered to wear a recorder so the ne- over the next few weeks the CI would make more payments and do all this other shit to help them out and before too long, he starts getting real nervous, um, doesn't like this plan anymore that basically they're like, okay, you're going to keep making your payments on time. And as we go along, you're going to become less reliable. You're going to start making your payments less frequently. And the kid's like, that's a great way for me to get killed. That's, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this. So this would kind of force the, the loan shark's hand to make him pay to like, physically make him pay for you know for his uh his debts and stuff so he told the police that one uh that one of them that he'd actually talked to said that if he didn't get his money he'd have mickey featherstone come take care of him and that that scared the shit out of the kid because you know he knows who, who mickey featherstone is and what he's capable of the whole operation comes to a screeching halt one day when richie egan uh yeah, richie egan and his partner see Mickey Featherstone walking down the street with his newborn baby near uh, St. Clair's Hospital. He's got the kid in a, a stroller, you know. And uh, they had this suspicion that he was selling weed from the baby carriage as he's walking the streets with his kid. So they tell this kid, the CI, you're going to go up and buy some drugs from him. And the kid... The kid fucking freaks out, and he's like, I'm not going anywhere near Featherstone if I'm wearing a wire. Not going to happen. So they kept insisting, kept trying to push him, and he actually, like, undid his shirt and grabbed the wire and pulled it off of his chest and took, like, a chunk of skin with it and all that. And he's like, I don't fucking think so. And he, like, he's like, I'm done. And they keep forcing him and forcing him, and the kid got so scared that he pissed his pants in the back of the car. There, I believe <laughs> you it. know? So... 
as soon as the car kind of came to a stop, he jumped out and just fucking ran away, and they never saw him again. He he split town. He was gone. So with the CI out of it, the case kind of hits a, a dead spot. The FBI drops out of the case. But Egan kind of had this idea that the FBI wouldn't stay out of it long with all the, quote, glamorous stuff going on, mm. that the case would continue eventually. On January 18, 1978, Ricky Tessiello was lured to the apartment of Tony Lucic because he owed Jimmy a very large amount of money and was late on his payments uh, um, so much that it was not a great deal um, that he was behind, but Jimmy wanted to make an example of him, and he was making Jimmy look bad in the neighborhood. So he's like, you know, i got to take care of this shit. And he, you're you're behind, and everybody's starting to realize that hey, you know, you're he's behind. Well, I can be behind too. So fuck it. Yeah, not a good idea. Yeah. So Jimmy had uh, had promised Mickey previous to this that he would not kill him that night. There wouldn't be no killing, nothing. Because from what I understand, like Mickey and Ricky were like kind of friends. Like they weren't like best buddies, but. They would hang out at the bar once in a while together. So, yeah. like, they, they were pals. Like, you Conf- know, they... You know, confidant. You know, he knew yeah. him, but, you know, he knew him, but he didn't know him. Yeah. So, when he confronted, uh, Tessio went for a knife in the kitchen, and Mickey grabbed him. Well, Jimmy then shot Tessio three times in the head. <laughs> Lucic and Jimmy would then cut up the body and bring it in plastic bags to Ward's Island and dumped it in the river. But... This is, you know, he also got to had to open up the bag to show uh, Tommy there that you know, hey, this is this is him, and he's like sick fucker was like, hey, yeah, he's like, oh shit, I recognize this kid. Oh yeah, well that's some old school shit that whenever there would be a bounty hunter during like the medieval times or whatever, they they would like bring back his head. They would want to physically see it because otherwise they don't believe him. Or shit, even back in the Wild West, they did that. Exactly, you know? and it's a, as much as it's a gross thing, but that's the only way to have clear, concise information that this person has been taken care of. Because otherwise, if you have a hit out on somebody, yep, it's done. Are you sure? Yeah, it's done. Come to find out, they moved to California, and now they're doing the same thing under an assumed name or whatever, and the other people will never know. Where if you have physical evidence and not just like, oh, a tattoo on an arm or whatever, like you have their fucking head, yeah. that proves that that person is legitimately dead unless they have a twin. And, uh, an- but it's Another thing with this whole thing at the island, like where you're talking about where he wants to see the heads, I think that's kind of creating an opportunity to blackmail if you have to, mm-hmm. to go, oh, no, no, I remember he brought this kid down here. He showed me his fucking head. Yeah, you know, so like, it's what like kind of you, sicko does that. You've got dirt on each other because hey, it's why, like why you're disposing you? of the bodies, but I know who you're, who I'm fucking throwing away. It was like, why, why the fuck did you want to see the head? Everyone's culpable. Well, because uh, you know, the things and stuff, and you know, I wanted to see who. I'm he a was sick killing. fuck. I wanted to see a decapitated head. Yeah. You know, so with all of these beatings and killings, it kind of brought that Mickey and Jimmy were involved in. It kind of brought them a lot closer as friends. Mickey had thought that um, Jimmy was testing him and to see if he would crack. And they also wanted to see if he would feel more of that doubt and remorse. Um, But he didn't. He put more of his trust each time into Jimmy. And he found a line. I I, I actually went through and I was 
was reading the book by uh, of the Westies by Todd English. TJ English. TJ English, sorry. Um, I found a line that when he was discussing Jimmy and Mickey becoming tighter in friendship, um, he used the analogy that I've heard before, which he called it the concrete ratio, which is the more violent and dangerous the act, the tighter and more uh, uh, interdependent they become afterwards. And I thought this was that makes sense. Good, okay. I thought this was a good way to describe the relationship because it made me stop and think about things that I have heard from like my dad and others that um, that were soldiers in the army. And Kevin, you can kind of you know test this because you've heard the stories of my dad. Oh yeah. Well, you know because have fellow soldiers, um, they become so tight that actually I had a, a guy that I went to school with that was um, I think he was a ranger or something like that, and he said that he had he never knew that he could actually love another man, but not in a. Um, Physical romantic way. way. Ro- it was more like a platonic, yeah. you know, sort of type of thing because, you know, it's, you don't you don't love them romantically, but you love them as a, you know a like friend. A brother. They're brothers. Yeah, like they're blood. Yeah, and you can pick your family, but you can pick your friends. Yeah, so I mean, I I kind of was like, wow. So this is kind of how, you know, this this uh, concrete ratio of was kind of like more like uh, the my dad talking about his his buddies in the army and you know how they being in iraq how they become so tight that you know, there's a bond that just could not be broken by you know pretty much anything at all so you know this with this whole tightening of a relationship uh things move on to february of 1978 when mickey receives a phone call from a certain uh italian guy oh yeah so, as I referred to it in my notes, this is when the real Goodfellas shit starts. Uh, Alberta Sachs, who is uh, Jimmy's niece that we mentioned before with the Patty Dugan thing, and her boyfriend, Raymond Steen, and everybody remember that name. You're going to hear it again. Mm-hmm. Um, they lived in the same par- apartment. Actually, they lived directly next door to Mickey and uh, Mickey and Sissy. She got a call and she got told to come over to Featherstone's place where her uncle was waiting with uh, Mickey, Sissy, Richie Ryan, Billy Beatty, Dick Mayer, and Jackie Coonan. Uh, Jimmy, Mickey, and Dick were all in like real nice, expensive-looking suits, and everybody seemed in a everybody seemed like they were in a pretty serious like mood. Like we're in business mode here; we can't fuck around. So Uncle Jimmy explains to her kind of what's going on that him and Mickey have been called to a sit-down in Brooklyn on the orders of of, uh, Paul Castellano. She didn't know the name at first, but when he showed her a picture, she kind of freaked out a little bit. Um, But she was excited. Exactly. It was was an excited freak out. She's like, holy shit, you know. So Paul Castellano was the head of the Gambino crime family, which which was the largest family in New York City. He took over after uh, his uncle Carlo Gambino had had a heart attack and died in 1976. Uh, Big Polly, as he was known, uh, was the Capo di Tutta Capi, which is the godfather of all godfathers, making him the fucking boss. That's the big dog. Yeah. Now, being called to dinner with him could be either really, really good or really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And Kunin uh, had been working toward this goal of having a sit-down meeting with the Italians for, like, damn near a decade 
pretty much. Like, in his brain, he's had this idea going. But he didn't know if he should be excited or nervous. Because he didn't know if it was for what it was for. If it was yeah. for Ruby getting killed. Yeah. Or something else. Exactly. So he knew that uh, that Castellano and other family members would uh, were actually pretty concerned and upset about the death of Ruby Stein. And uh, Jimmy had the thought that maybe they knew that he did it. And that if they if they did know that he was dead, so Jimmy and Mickey come up with a plan. We're going to send a scouting party into Tommaso's restaurant, which is where the meeting's being held. If anything looks even like the slightest bit hinky, we're going to call. We're going to send a call back to Featherstone's apartment, and the rest of the group will be waiting here. Alberta and Dick Mayer would be the scouts since they didn't look like gangsters because Dick Dick Mayer was like. Like uh, 18, 19 years 20, old. Yeah, he, was, he was a maybe. kid. And Alberta was like 17 or 18 at the time. This was like two young kids going out to dinner. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like they're on their first date. He's taking his girlfriend out to a nice dinner, you know, you know, expensive dinner kind of thing. Because yeah, they didn't want to walk into a trap. They're like, you know, hey, oh, fuck well, no. I'm going to send my, you know, send this guy who's part of the, the, of the, of the group. Yeah. And my niece, you know, they got loyalty to me. Right. So fuck it. So they they got dressed real nice and they were you know they were told to act respectfully, order a big meal and keep an eye and ear out <clears throat> to see if they caught wind of anything weird. And the funny thing was the um, Alberta during the time that she was getting dressed, she was in the the room with um, Sissy, mm-hmm. and she was like all bubbly, giggly, and yeah. everything. And Sissy's kind of like, Sissy's what the, the fuck are you so giggly and, you know, everything about <laughs> Girl, don't you realize what is going on right now? It's funny that you mentioned that because Sissy was in the exact opposite mood. She was really fucking upset with this whole thing. Like, Mickey's spending all this time working with Jimmy. He's, got, he's constantly gone, but he never has any fucking money. Mm-hmm. So, she's pissed because... Her husband's putting in all this time and work, and they're struggling to make it. And fucking Jimmy and Edna Coonan just bought a giant house out in Hazlitt, New Jersey, where they're, like, out of the neighborhood. They're not in danger constantly. So that's where she's pissed off is, like, why the fuck, if you've got all this money, why can't you pay my man better? Exactly. Well, not only that, it's one of those things, why are we struggling? Why are we putting these young kids in there? Like, what the fuck? Why am I always the one that has to deal with all this shit? Yeah. So, back out in the living room, Jimmy addresses the men with the plan. So he says, me and Mickey going to go in the, in the restaurant just like we're supposed to. See what those guys got to say for themselves. But if you don't hear from us in two hours, two fucking hours, there's a social club next to Tommaso's. Vets and Friends, it's called. You come in there blasting with everything you got. We got no choice. We've been called. If we don't go, we might still get whacked. But I swear to Christ, if we do... I want this to be the biggest fucking slaughter since the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Holy shit. Jimmy wanted a fucking bloodbath if they went down. (laughs) Well, yeah, man. I'm not surprised this guy's fucking crazy and he's not going to go into any situation and be a victim. Right. And he's going to take everybody with him. Because that that St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago was fucked. Brutal. Yeah. Um, So Ray Steen had actually brought up big old laundry bag full of guns over from his apartment. Well, Jimmy told him to go get them. Yeah, well, go get yeah. them. So this or gu- Mickey did. Wh- whichever of the two. He was told to go get them. Doesn't matter. The bag's and there. And bring them. This bag's got 25s, 32s, 38s, 
a couple of 45s with silencers and a 9mm machine gun and a couple of hand grenades. I want to know who the guy was that was the lucky one that got to carry a hand grenade. I was just thinking of like, <laughs> you killed the guy with a trident. <laughs> Where the fuck did you get a trident? <laughs> Found it. There, there was also two Japanese machetes, a bunch of ski masks, handcuffs, bulletproof vests, and walkie-talkies. <laughs> um, Mickey took a 25 and a 38. He stuck the 30, the 25 like down into like the crotch of his pants and the 38 at his belt like on the small of his back. Jimmy did the same thing. And some sources will tell you that each one of them also took a hand grenade and put it in their pocket just in case. I'll believe it with Mickey. I, I, I saw it a couple of places, but I didn't see it in where I got the main part of my information. I like to think that maybe they're like, whoop, fuck it, just, just to be safe. <laughs> I believe it with Mickey. I really do. So... As Coonan and Featherstone left, Jimmy reminded him, uh, reminded them one more time. Two goddamn hours. You don't hear from us in two hours. You come down here swinging. Yeah. So Coonan, but Coonan told Mickey, I get it if you don't want to go. You got a young kid. You got a young wife. If you don't want to go, I totally get it. Stay here. Mickey kind of thought about it for a second because he really, really didn't like the idea of working with the Italians. And that was Jimmy's deal. But at the same time, he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you. I think his quote is, nah, man, I'm with you. I mean, if they're going to whack you, it's, it means they're going to whack me too. So what's, what's the, the fucking what, difference? What's the fucking difference? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he says, not fucking, fucking. Yeah, fucking. Yeah, it's, it's Irish. F-E-C-K, yeah. Um, I get Jimmy a- just kind of just smiles and he understands what he's trying to say. Okay, My can- loyal dog will forever stay loyal. So the the pair get in the car and they uh, they drive down to uh, down to Tommaso's. They arrive there at around 7 p.m. and they park the car in a little side street. Tommaso's was a, a pretty good sized place with plenty of like big plants and hanging ferns and tablecloths. It was very 70s New York kind of. <laughs> Watch Goodfellas. That's what the restaurant looks it's, like. It's very Godfather-esque. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Exactly. So they go in. They uh, they grab a couple of seats at the bar and order some drinks. And Roy DeMeo actually got there five, ten minutes after them. And uh, he kind of comes up and shoots the shit for a little bit. They finish their drinks. And he goes, okay, follow me. Let's go. So as they walk to the uh, as they walk to the private dining area, DeMeo told them, quote, whatever you do, don't admit nothing. They're going to ask you about Ruby. You don't tell you tell them I don't know nothing. They're going to ask you about his book and you say, "What book?" All right? That's kind of <laughs> awesome that he's get, telling giving him an alibi yeah. telling him what to do. Of like, I like you guys. Don't fuck this shit up. I'm going to tell you a way to get out of it. <laughs> I like you exactly. It's that exact thing of like if they find out that I helped you, all, all three fu- of us are fucking dead, not just you two idiots. <laughs> well, not only that, and everybody else is connected to you. Yeah. Because I think he had a bigger plan. Yeah, like, they, they would have wiped out DeMeo's entire fucking crew if they found out that he was involved with mm-hmm. helping. Oh, exactly, yeah. And so, probably also Mickey's crew and also the, definitely They would have gone fucking Coonins. scorched earth like everybody with an Irish last name in Hell's Kitchen would have been Full dead in the streets. <laughs> And, and this is the, and this is the part where you know they're coming they're coming to the back room yeah and the names I'm just like fucking hell I I I would have shit a brick so, just just hearing all these names and what they I was like that's these are the men 
The men of the men. So as they enter the private dining area, they could not believe their eyes. It was a huge, like, big horseshoe table. And the most powerful gangsters in New York City were seated at this table. Judging table. Like, judges table at every fucking competition. <laughs> you walk in. Pack your knives and go. Car- Car- <laughs> so you got a guy. Carmine Lombardozzi. Yeah, you got Carmine Lombardozzi, who is the money man for the Gambino family. Uh, Joe Gallo, who was the uh, the Gambino consigliere, Anelio Della Croce, the the Gambino underboss, Nino Gaggi, who was another one of the uh, the underbosses for the Gambino family. Nino Gaggi was a mean motherfucker. Now, uh, uh, Della Croce was the he was second the, in command yes. to uh, to Castellano. So Gaggi would have been like a uh, capo kind of. Yeah, he would have like been a crew chief kind of deal. Um. Funzi Thierry, who is a, a rep of Fat Tony Salerno's uh, Genovese family, and seated right in the dead center of the table was Big Polly, Paul Castellano himself. Ooh. So Coonan and Featherstone uh, were seated, and they had their food brought out to them. Um, they kind of made some small talk with the guys, and uh, Nino Gaggi actually starts talking to Mickey Featherstone about uh, about his time in Vietnam, and he's like, "Hey, I had a I had a nephew who was a, a Green Beret." How the fuck did you get a hundred percent disability? I want to help my nephew. This is one of those things. I was like, of all the fucking things you could talk yeah. about, you're like, hey, 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 buddy. So, uh, how the fuck did you get that disability? Yeah, tell me, because I got you know my nephew, and you know I want I want to get him the disability yeah, too. He, he's like, well, he, he's he's getting his uh his his GI pension, but you know he got hurt. How how do you <laughs> how did you get the hundred percent disability thing? And I can I can almost imagine Mickey sitting there just going. Don't tell him you're crazy. Don't tell him you're crazy. <laughs> well, I'm fucking nuts, Nino. That's how I got it. You know? I can see him actually doing it, just having fun with it. So out of nowhere, Paul Castellano speaks up, and the room goes completely silent, as it does when the boss starts talking. Quote, Jimmy, did you or any of your people have anything to do with this terrible thing, this murder of our good friend Ruby Stein? Jimmy Coonan didn't fucking skip a beat. Nope, we didn't have anything to do with that. Castellano then asked about uh, if they knew anything about the book, and Coonan comes back with, I don't even know what you're talking about. What's a book? Yeah. I, I, I think was, they, all of them actually asked questions, and, and Jimmy was flatlined. Yeah. Like, Jimmy was no. fucking stone cold, like, no. Nope. He's a crazy psychopathic, sociopathic killer, man. Lying is in his blood. <laughs> I don't know shit. Yeah. So Castellano proceeds to explain to him what this book is and why it's so important. He's like, you know, that book's got millions of dollars worth of loans in it, and, like, th- there's people that need to have that book. Can you imagine if they're like, <laughs> did you find any book? A black? I did not find any kind of black book or anything. What do you mean by black book? I didn't say a black book. You said a black book. What are you talking about a black book for with numbers <laughs> and things and words in it? I didn't find a black book with numbers and words and things in it. I have a... I got a blue book. I got a I got a, a dark dark midnight blue book. It's pretty cool. You know what's it's, in it? I draw. It's not even blue technically. It's like a real dark purple. Yeah, you know? I like to draw. I'm so, a, I'm a doodler. So this conversation continues with more questions. Like they basically went around the the table, fucking questioning Jimmy. Uh, and really, you know, questions coming up like, "Hey, didn't some of your guys borrow money from Ruby?" And Jimmy's like, "Yeah, was, but, you know, of course they did. Everybody did. But as far as I know, they'd all paid up." So after some more conversation, Castellano speaks uh, speaks up again. Quote, all right, Jimmy, this is our position. From now on, you and your boys are going to be with us, which means you got to stop acting like cowboys, like wild men. 
If any if anybody needs to be removed, you have to clear it with people. Everything goes through Nino or Roy. You'll have our permission to use the family name uh, in your business dealings in the uh, on the west side. But whatever monies you make, you will cut us in ten percent, except of course for the loan sharking that you'll work out with Roy. So Jimmy chimes in and tell him, you know, "It's like, hey, we've been losing our asses on the numbers lately, you know." And Big Polly just goes, "You don't have to worry about that as a problem anymore. You know, that's not not going to be a problem. You're you'll, you're fine, as long as you stop." killing people that you're not authorized to kill. Mm-hmm. How are you supposed to make money if you kill the people that you're supposed to get money off of? <laughs> and that was the problem with the Irish is like, they didn't have your money. They just fucking kill you. So it's like, you're not going to get the money, but we're, they're dead. We're an impulsive breed, man. Fuck off. So here's where something really kind of funny happens during dinner. Um, Nino Gaji's sitting there, still talking to Mickey. And Mickey's still got like half his food on his plate. And he goes, Mickey, why don't you finish your food? And Mickey kind of chuckled at him, and he goes, I already ate a plateful. What What do you want? I should wind up with a fat belly like you guys? <laughs> oh, could you imagine it was, like, endless pasta bowl and breadsticks, like, Olive Garden? Motherfucker, I'm sick of this breadstick shit. Does it, does it fucking Nino Jimmy, Jimmy kicks him under the table, like, shut the fuck up. You're going to get us killed. And, like, the room is silent, and all of a sudden, Nino starts laughing his ass off, you know? And, yeah. like, the rest of everybody's like, okay, this is, you know. And what was it uh, then? Oh, Alberta? She got. Oh all, yeah, I she gets. Put that in here, she though. gets all fucking like. She's all antsy in the pantsy because she knows something's going she on. She wants to see what's going yeah, on. She she's like, oh, I want to go see it. So she goes out towards the back. I have to go pee. So uh, of she, course, to get to the private dining room, you have to walk past the bathrooms. Uh huh. So so she goes in and then she, act, she like tries to see it. But I don't, she can see anything. She can't. She tries to listen. She can't. Well. Well, I think she went she, into the bathroom. She turned around to go back to the bathroom, yeah. and she ran fucking face-to-face, head-first, with Paul Castellano. Like, knocked his glasses <laughs> off. She bends down to get his glasses. He bends down to get her the glasses, and she bends back up, and they fucking whack heads, and his fucking cigar goes flying. I feel like this is like that scene in uh, <laughs> fucking Scrooge. Yeah. But I'm bum bum And like... And she's like freaking out, like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry." And he's like, "Sweetheart, it's okay. Just go to the bathroom." <laughs> she's like, "Uh, okay." And she goes. It's like you got to remember though, Paul Castellano's a grandfather. He understands like younger kids like yeah. being goofy and shit. But I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't put it in my notes. Yeah. So that you know, they're like, "Well, all right, they're done eating. Let's yeah. go. Let's go to the vets and club, vets and friends social club." Yeah. And they can you know so they talk some more. They're they're fucking laughing and drinking and. Castellano kind of pulls Mickey and Jimmy aside and uh, he wants to talk about the new the new business partnership. It says, quote, if you ever if you ever get called to come to Brooklyn, you must come. No questions asked. And you don't bring any weapons. No weapons inside the club. <laughs> Little did Big Polly know that at this point in time, Jimmy Coonan and Mickey Featherstone both have a 25 caliber and a 38 caliber pistol on them. And if you believe speculation, a fucking hand grenade each, just in case shit gets weird. Tape to their gooch. No, they just would have stuck them in their fucking pockets, these guys. Yeah, nature's pocket, right between the legs. Is... <laughs> You've got huge balls, now it's a grenade taped to my taint. <laughs> yeah, bro. <laughs> so, Run that uh, joke for me. So after the talk, they, uh, you know, Big Polly gives them each a Cuban cigar, and they're fucking having their cigars, and they're drinking, and just generally having a good time. And uh, Mickey looks up at the wall and realizes it's fucking nine o'clock. Oh shit! Two hours. The passed. two hour has two hour mark has hit. So 
him and Jimmy both kind of start freaking out. They're trying to stay calm and they're like, we got to get to a phone or, you know, at least we'll go stand outside. <laughs> so when they show up, you know, like they'll see us, you know, commiserating and having fun and, you know, it'll be all right. So after the crowd kind of dispersed, uh, Coonan and Featherstone go hauling ass to go find a payphone. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, back at the apartment, the boys were sitting around drinking beer and watching TV. And when the two hour mark had hit, someone had suggested to Jackie that they head out. But Jackie goes, nah, let's, let's give him a few more minutes, you know. This is why you don't leave your little brother in charge. Yeah. <laughs> the few more minutes turns into a half, like half an hour. Seems like a like a comedy movie for me. This whole fucking thing has been a comedy movie right like, here. Like, either that or they leave and go to the social club, like, next door, and then these crazy drunk idiots come barging into the restaurant ready to blow shit up and shoot up everything, <laughs> and no one's there. So, fucking, the phone rings, and... Jackie picks it up, and Mickey's in this phone booth screaming at him, where the fuck were you? And Jackie just responds with, where the fuck are you? <laughs> and Mickey comes back with, no, where the fuck are you guys? And he goes, where the fuck are you guys? It's like, we're fucking, we're, listen, we were watching TV and shit. He's like, you better fucking explain so, this yeah, shit to your brother. Yeah, Mickey, Mickey hands Jimmy the phone, and he's like, talk to your asshole brother. And Jimmy fucking tears him a new one, and he's like... So, you guys have brothers. Did yeah. you ever have this kind of fun with a brother when you were expecting to be at some place and they weren't there? And like, yes. where the fuck are you? And then they're like, yes. I don't know. Every time I talk to my brother, this is how a conversation goes. <laughs> Interesting. We'll be we'll be there for dinner in five minutes. I get a call in three minutes. Where the fuck are you guys? We're not there yet, dumbass. Where are you guys? We're not. You fucking see us walking through the door? We're not there yet. So after the call ended, Jimmy and Mickey kind of like, they, they just laughed about it the entire way home because of how much of a fucking comedy show it had been and uh Coonan had just pulled off something that he had put into motion almost a decade before and he like he was feeling good you know he just got hooked up with one of the most powerful crime families not only in the city but probably in the country and with all this going on Jimmy told Mickey that with this new partnership and all the new money coming in he's gonna he's gonna get a pretty sizable raise so Mickey was surprised. You know, he was like, eh, you know, that was actually fun. I had fun at dinner with these guys. And uh, he definitely liked the idea of getting more money. Who doesn't? But in the back of his head, the whole way home, all you could think about is what it, what would have happened if, you know, Jackie and the boys had showed up when they were supposed to. You know, like, you've got all the big name, like, mafioso guys in the city there. And if these guys had just showed up and hosed the fucking place down... That probably would have led to like the bloodiest, most violent mob war in the history of the country. Probably that that, that could have been a fucking horror show. But thank God for beer. So th- there's the there's the old saying that the Irish would rule the world if whiskey didn't exist. So thank God for that. Apparently, <laughs> and that we didn't. And if we didn't fuck up growing potatoes, yeah, <clears throat> you can't help what nature does to you. Yeah, yeah. Look at uh, the Midwest. You know, they got fucked. Yeah. Big time back in the 20s and 30s. Whole crops fucking wiped the fuck out. We're not here to talk Grapes of Wrath shit, though. We're not. No. So over the next few months, Coonan and Featherstone would have more meetings with various members of the Gambino family, ranging from guys like Roy DeMeo and uh, Danny Grillo, right up to Paul Castellano himself. Uh, Most of these meetings were to exchange information on... uh, were, were to exchange information. On one occasion, Coonan wanted to get the word to Castellano about a hit going out against one of his uh, one of his guys. 
so after Ruby's death, DeMeo became uh, Kunin's main uh, finance guy. So, like, when he needed to borrow money to have people borrow money from him, he went to Roy DeMeo to get it. So Jimmy was comfortable with the arrangement uh, with the Italians, but some of his inner circle guys really, really are starting to not like this. Especially Mickey. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Featherstone saw this whole thing as a move that uh, that Jimmy had pulled off without even consulting his guys and you know wanting the support from them. There had been some rumbling since Ruby's death that a lot, uh, a lot of that came from the fact that Jimmy said when Ruby was dead and he had the book, he would clear everyone's debts. The problem was, Kuna went around telling people that owed Ruby money, they now owed Jimmy money. Mm-hmm. So only a few guys were in, like, real, real deep with Ruby that this would have affected pretty greatly if he had actually just wiped the slate clean. But nobody was happy with this whole new development of shit going on. Yeah, because it goes against everything they were knew from Mickey Spillane... And it goes even, right against what Jimmy himself had said. Yeah, exactly. What I'm saying is, yeah. like, it's been written in their quote unquote gang decree that they will always be self sufficient and not rely on anybody else, exactly. including the Italians who, during this time, there was a lot of rivalry. And now, all of a sudden, now, hey, we're BFFs, so we're yeah. working together. But the Italians are technically ruling everything, and now we're under their thumb where we used to be our own, you know, our own creatures, our own gang. Now we're just a subsidiary of them. And to make matters worse, the rumor the rumor going around was that uh, Jimmy was giving his new Italian buddies more than their fair share of uh, of the racket money, and that he was treating his new pals better than uh, than his guys that had been with him since the jump. Well, he wants to be a you know a good fella. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, so Mickey Mickey again did not like this whole idea. On one hand, Jimmy treated him really well, and you know Mickey was now going to be getting two hundred dollars a week to drive him around. Which, uh, with this extra 200 bucks, would actually put him up to about $500 a week. Which Mickey was cool with. Like, that's good money. Yeah, it's you not know. too bad compared yeah, to what he had. Well, because, I mean, he found this all out because it was March of 78. Jimmy had met Mickey outside of Tony Lucci's apartment. And he told him that he'd pay him an extra $5,000. Put $5,000 yes. Mickey because Mickey had uh, been really upset. You know, like Kevin said, I mean, he was really upset, you know, because he wasn't... He didn't trust the fucking Italians as no. far as he could throw them, basically. No. And so Jimmy must have felt this, and he was like, okay, listen, hey, I've put $5,000 into the numbers business for you, So, which meant he was now going to get 25% of the numbers money. Yeah. And then he said... Like which, Kevin, that's a sizable chunk of fucking yes. money. And like Kevin said, he was going to give him an additional $200 a week to drive Mickey around to collect the money. Yeah. Um, But Jimmy was... You know, J- Jimmy was okay for a while, but he still didn't like the whole deal. And this is like one of the things that uh, lines he says. He refers to Italians as the. <laughs> I was just uh, about uh, to get into that. Yeah, <laughs> Re- refers to them as the Al Colognes. Can I read the quote? <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. So, when Jimmy heard him say this, he goes, "You mean Al Cal- Al Capone, right?" Mickey explained himself. He goes, no, Al Cologne. You know the type. They got that $100 cologne on, them rings on their pinky fingers, hair slicked back, and them $1,000 suits, always talking out the side of their mouth. Counterfeit tough guys. Wish I was, guys. You know, Al fucking Colognes. (laughs) He's got a point. Dude, and and for as crazy as Mickey Featherstone is, he's a funny motherfucker. Yeah. Like, I'd grab a beer with him and just make sure there was nothing, you know, no, just don't. Blunt or sharp around. <laughs> no, you can drink with them. Just remember one thing. Don't fucking piss him off. There you go. 
Yeah, I, I was like, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, Alkalodes? No, I must have mis- misread yeah, that. Yeah, it must have been a fucking mistype, right? Yeah, that's ha- ha- gotta be wrong. It's gonna be Al Capone's. No, it's Al Colones. Who doesn't have a family member or a friend that purposely says things wrong? <laughs> Sam and, Squanch. And even when you correct them, they still say it wrong. Sam Squanch? What? <laughs> it's a goddamn Sam Squanch. So Fe- Featherstone got like, a, he just had really bad feelings about this whole thing. Like you said, didn't trust the Italians as far as he could throw them. Wow. They had so many soldiers that they thought they could operate with impunity, and that ma- that made them dangerous to work with. Um, Jimmy kind of agreed with him to an extent, but after successfully killing Ruby Stein, Kunin had become pretty pretty brazen about his actions with everything. And he, he knew that the Italians were worried about the West Side Irish because they had that reputation of being fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, wild dogs. Yeah, it's like we there's less of them, but we fucking we piss them off and they're going to come here and they're going to rip us apart. Guerrilla warfare. So he keeps te- like Cooney keeps telling Featherstone like, and all of his other guys, you know, like, just okay. keep kind of, you know, just keep going with it. You're going to yeah. get more money. More money's going to come in. Just just watch. Yeah. And he, he keeps know? telling him, he's like, well, I don't really trust him. I don't really trust the Italians either. But what he's doing and what he's saying are two completely different things. Yeah, because during this time, wasn't he also starting to buy the more expensive suits? He was starting to buy the more expensive cars. As you specified and stated earlier, he moved out of the neighborhood. Now he's living in Jersey in a much bigger home. He's no longer in Hell's Kitchen. And he's... And that was the first big thing for Mickey. He's not seeing anything. That was the first big thing for Mickey. He's like, why are you leaving the fucking neighborhood? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're um, supposed to be with us and fighting with us, and we're all here, yet you and your wife are living in this massive-ass mansion, and you can barely pay us. And now we're under the thumb of the Italians, and if they come in, we can't do anything without their permission. Exactly. So, I got even a loan boss. We have to, like, go high up. Yeah. I got, I got to share this little thing, because that's nothing related to these guys, but uh, it's kind of interesting, because talking about Jersey, um, I actually happen to know a guy, and Kevin, you know him too. Um Oh yeah, that uh, he actually—he's <clears throat> Irish, and well, Irish descent, and uh, <laughs> he actually used to collect money for uh, the Italians, I believe it was uh, during this this period of time in Jersey. Yeah, he would walk into places and he would collect. And he's a scary son of a bitch. He doesn't look it, but he is. Oh yeah. So some of Jimmy's guys would were actually talking behind his back. And they were saying that the meeting at Tommaso's had blinded him mm-hmm. to what the Italians are actually doing. And that his need to get respect from the Gambinos was actually more important to helping his boy, his crew out. Yeah. So an example of this involved our buddy Danny Grillo. Which is summer of 78, which this also puts a like a big cap on Jimmy uh, Mickey's not liking the fucking yes. Italians. This is almost getting very, very close to last straw territory for Mickey yeah. not liking these Italian guys. So, Jimmy got a call in the summer of 78 from Danny Grillo, who was Roy DeMeo's right-hand man. And Grillo owed Jimmy a lot of money. And he fallen behind in payments. So, Mickey told Jimmy that Grillo um, may try to bump him off. And that was the reason why he was going to go, you know, Wanted to meet him. Yep. And, um, but, you know, Jimmy's like, nah, nah. No, nah, he's, nah. he's not gonna, he's not gonna do that. He's a good kid, you know. He, you know, he just needs some, you know, help, uh, killing a guy. Yeah. That's it. 
Well, how, how nonchalant that is. Hey, what's going on? Oh, nothing much. Hey, you want to help? What do you got going on later today? You got anything going on? Yeah. No. No? You want to help me, uh, you know, take care of something, some business? You it, cool it, with that? It, it's like you texting me. It's only me. killing a guy. Yeah. It's nothing big. You got? It, you free? <laughs> I'll like, pick you up around five. It's like you texting me twice a year. Hey, man, you want to help me come move my grill? Sure, if you help me with mine. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so, Jimmy... Uh, Griot brought Jimmy to a parking garage and he gave him a pistol and said, when you see a car with Florida license plates come in, open fire. Griot took off and Jimmy stayed and after a while he saw a car with Florida plates and when he looked into the car, he saw some of the people and they were friends of Griot's and this got Jimmy paranoid and so he checks the magazine of his pistol and he found that there was only one goddamn round. Oh, I, I saw that it was completely empty. No, there was one round. In oh, it. shit. Um, he knew that it, uh, he was being set up. Oh, he, well, yeah. Because <clears throat> as soon as he opened fire... You know what this yeah. reminds me of? I'm going to interrupt you quick. Yeah. That scene in fucking Boondock Saints where Rocco goes in to, to smoke the... Uh, uh, the the Russian gangsters, he's dressed up like the fucking room service guy, and he goes in with a revolver with two bullets in it because he thought there's two guys in there and there's like fifteen of them. Yeah, <laughs> and then some John just like, fucking oh, fuck. Rambo shit yeah. happens through the fucking. Get your stupid fucking rope. Oh. <laughs> All right, that Rambo. So it's not like that in the movies. You gotta get that fucking guy that jumps over the couch. You gotta shoot it out of for ten fucking minutes. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit, that fucking worked. <laughs> that fucking worked. <laughs> And there was a firefight. You fucking fucks. <laughs> so Jimmy knows that he had been probably set up <laughs> to be touch. gunned down when he opened fire. And he then leaves. Uh, when, we, when meeting with Roy DeMeo after the attempt to, because um, he had tried to actually attempt to kill Grio, he told Ray, Roy what had happened and that you know, all the trouble he had gone through. Yeah. Roy told him that he didn't have to worry about Grio anymore and that he got rid of him because he had been being a, quote, punk and a lowlife. Yeah. Well, they actually did try it themselves first, though. Yes. Uh, October of 1978, uh, they took uh, Jimmy's new red van that they referred to as the Meat Wagon, which is fucking excellent, <laughs> up to uh, Roy DeMeo's club, which was the Gemini Club in uh, Canarsie. So they're driving there, and uh, the fucking van is full of, like, ski masks and bulletproof vests. They've got handguns and knives. Punisher War Wagon style, baby. They've got an old-school forty-five caliber Browning submachine gun, like you, the ones you see in, like, all the old World War II games. It's called a grease gun. They got one of those with them. So they get into position, and they're waiting for Grillo to come out of the club. As soon as he gets to his car, fucking Mickey Featherstone kicks the back door of the van open and is just like he draws up on him with that that submachine gun and he's got his finger on the trigger and jimmy starts yelling no 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 not here we're gonna get spotted so they tried to follow him when he left but fucking mcelroy can't get the van running so he just drives off and they're sitting there in a dead vehicle like they almost almost had him this is this is like one of two times that they could have done a job and get it done but because someone gets cold feet things get fucked up. Yep. <laughs> Which, you know, is what, how shit goes. So then, uh, November of 78, um, Jimmy 
tells Billy Beatty that he's sick and tired of Tommy Collins uh, being behind on his payments. And he wanted Billy to kill Tommy and make his body disappear. Which Billy was not going to do. Yeah. He was... He, he respected Tommy Collins too much to do but, that. But, I mean, Billy goes to the motions. You know, he goes, gets a silenced thirty two caliber from uh, Jimmy's younger brother, Eddie. And after a few weeks of looking for Tommy, not finding him, he decides that, you know what, fuck this, I can't do it. Yeah. You know, he gives the gun back to Jimmy and tells Eddie, tell your brother, I can't, I couldn't pull off the murder. Uh, I'm, you know, I couldn't find him. Couldn't find him. So... Uh, then this, so then, on the twenty second of seventy eight, Jimmy, Mickey, and Jimmy McElroy go to the Placa Bar oh, to un- unwind after a long stressful day because they get hired to whack a union official. Um, they had been, who they had been previously approached by Billy Murtha in July of that year of seventy eight. Who was. If I remember correctly, he was one of the guys with uh, with Jimmy after when Jimmy got arrested for the uh, the killing the killing of that guy that he thought was one of the hired gunmen from Texas that Mickey Spillane had flown up. Yeah, yeah. Um, they had put on a hit out on uh, Union official James Marr. Um, they had proposed that they would give him Jimmy and Mickey ten thousand dollars if they killed Mirtha. A uh, mayor, I'm sorry, and another twenty thousand if they made the body disappear. They wanted him gone because the they cl- put it in a big hat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he disappeared. <laughs> Surprise! And for my next trick, <laughs> you may call me Houdini. Hey, oh, uh, <laughs> so they wanted him gone so that because the there's a collective bargaining agreement that mayor. Um, have been promoting to go away which and so Jimmy and Mickey accepted the hit and wanted $5,000 as a down payment so over the next four months they made several attempts to kill Mayor and not a single one of them worked obviously um, one of the attempts was this other a second of uh, I just said November about, 22nd with, 1978 they got gold, uh, got the cold feet was this whole thing was a fucking shit show too? Yeah, like they're in these goofy ass disguises trying to follow him, and like fucking Mickey Featherstone's wearing a, a pair of shoes that are like four sizes too big for him over his actual fucking shoes. And what Jimmy's wearing fucking trench coat? And yeah, all, you know, trying to I guess sort of blend in yeah, like Mickey, international Mickey, man of mystery. And, and Mickey's trying to run in what are essentially fucking clown shoes to keep up with this guy, and they just you know they they caught up to him and. uh Mickey actually, uh, Jimmy pulls out his uh, his pistol and is going to shoot the guy in the back of the fucking head. Yeah, and Mickey's like, no, 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 that's not him, not that's not guy. him. <laughs> yeah. And Jimmy's like, what? Well, seconds later, they find out that it was the yeah, guy. he was the guy. And Jimmy's kind of fucking pissed. Understandably. You know. But, I mean, so was Mickey when, you know, Jimmy's like, hey, don't fucking shoot. Because, almost, you know. almost makes you wonder if Mickey fucked this up on purpose because Jimmy didn't let him kill Danny Grillo. True. You know, True. that's one of those things that I, I'm that kind of a dickhead where I'd go, eh, you fucked me up. I'm going to pay you back on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, possibly. I could, yeah, possibly. So, uh, so the guys are quite salty. 
at this point. <laughs> that's, they're pissed off. Because that's a good way to put it. Yeah. They're not gonna get this fucking money because you know they couldn't they couldn't come up with it. So they're at the placa bar having a few drinks, and upon arriving at the bar, they see some familiar faces, well, like uh, William Comas, who uh, they knew as Billy Uptown. Uh, they also saw Billy uh, Hugard, Huggard, Huggard, Bobby Huggard, Hugard, Huggard. Uh, let's see. They also uh, Jimmy Billy then introduced Mickey and Jimmy and Jimmy McElroy to John Crow, uh, Crowell, who Billy and Bobby had met while they were at Clinton uh, Correctional Facility in upstate New York, which is now what we know as Danamora. Yes, which there was a film about and. There was big news about two guys that escaped from there, and what one died, uh, the f- within what, what was it, seventy-two I, hours? I don't know. I, I was working up towards that neck of the woods at the time where when they broke out, like it was for I was up north far enough that they're like, make everybody make sure your doors are locked because if these guys cross the lake, they're going to be up in that area, yada yada yada. And I'm thinking to myself, okay. What are they going to do? Uh, fucking rob me in my my bug truck and get shot? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So good luck. All these all these guys that proceed to drink and tell stories about prison and about things from the past, just having a good old time. Thirty minutes pass when another guy joins the crowd yeah. by the name of Harold Whitey Whitehead. He knew John Crowell and Billy Uptown from prison. And he knew Bobby because they grew up together. Yep. Jimmy knew him for a different reason. Yeah. Because one night they were drinking at the 596 Club, and there was a fight that... um, Whitey and the bartender. Yeah, Richard Muggsy Ritter got into. And Jimmy's brother Jackie intervened in the fight, and Whitehead ran outside and called the cops. Like a fucking asshole. And Jimmy didn't like that much at all. So, you know, he kind of kept his distance. Yep. Then the drink started to flow, and as the saying goes, I heard, loose lips sink ships. <laughs> and this is what happened. When Whitehead began to run his mouth to Jimmy, the wrong person to run your fucking yep. mouth to, he made the mistake of calling Jimmy a rat bastard. Jackie. Or Jackie. Yeah. No, he said it to Jimmy. He called Jackie oh, a rat okay. bastard. Okay, I didn't, I didn't understand how you're wording that. He called Jackie a rat bastard. I think he might have dropped another name in there, too, where he might have said, oh, your brother's a fucking fag or something like that, and that set Jimmy off. He's like, okay, fair enough, sure. Yeah. Well, And he's got that fucking Irish stew of anger going in his brain at this point, you know? <laughs> this pissed Jimmy off, and John Crowell... Uh, must have sensed something that was going to happen. So he separated the two, and he suggested that Whitehead, uh, Hugard, and Comus go downstairs and smoke a bag, smoke some weed that he had actually brought in with yeah. him. Uh, after a bit of them being downstairs, Jimmy went down because he had to take a piss. <laughs> or, well, so he thought. <laughs> and he was using one of the urinals when uh, Crow handed him a joint that they had been passing around. It got to Jimmy, and, well, Jimmy took it and then turned around and pulled out his twenty five Beretta and took two steps forward and shot Whitehead in, in his right ear. <clears throat> the best part of this whole thing is he did it all in one motion where he, like, he declined the joint because Jimmy didn't really smoke. <clears throat> he reaches down like he's getting ready to zip his pants, 
and he fucking whips this 25 caliber Beretta out of the crotch of his pants, yeah. walks up and puts it to the base of this guy's skull and just fucking kills him. Yeah, right, right, in, right here. <laughs> boom, boom, dead. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. And He's a professional. Yeah. How many people has he killed now? A few. How many of us don't have a piss gun? Well, how many people have you killed? And you need the training. How long have you lived in Hell's Kitchen? How many people have tried to kill you? I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to answer those first few, but the the last one, probably more than a couple. <laughs> right. So, this is kind of where a little bit of a shit show oh, happens. Oh, Jesus. It's fucking Benny Hill. Yeah. Just get to it. So, they knew they had to get rid of the body. So, they told Carell that there was a dumpster out back. And the three of them were to carry the body... From the basement up into the uh, back door, uh, dumpster was because they had to go through the from the bar into an adjoining building, which yep. was the I can't say the Opera Hotel. Yes, so they had to go through all this different area, go through into the kitchen, and then they were out to the back door. Well, they get to the back door, such a disaster, <laughs> and they hear a person outside. They were like, uh-oh, what the hell? Because they were going to throw the body in there. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. So Mickey's like, all right, listen. I'll go out. I'll distract the fucking guy. And you can get guys can bring the body out and dump the fucker Keep in. in mind, when Mickey was coming back, he was supposed to be bringing a mop with him to clean up the blood. Yes. That's going to factor in here in a second. Um, but, yeah, this, this poor bastard was like, he was one of the residents of the hotel. He had gone through there's like a little almost like a security cage around the door mm-hmm. he went through and it locked behind him and he didn't realize that the door he was trying to get through was locked from the other side so he's trapped in this little like fucking uh, chain link cage kind of thing and he's banging on the door trying to get somebody's attention to get it to help him so it's like the whole thing is a fucking a, a, a nightmare. A comedy show, right? Again. Yeah. And mind you, this is all like in a matter of like 10, 15 minutes, yeah, it's, something it's like that. it's been quick. You know, because they first they were going to try to use the freight elevator. They couldn't use that because they thought someone was coming down to it. So they went through all this shit. Um, so they get to this area and they're like, nothing's fucking happening on the shit. Well, fuck this. Jimmy's like, you know, hell with this. You know, we're just going to, this is what we're going to do. We're going to. I went into detail if you want. Yeah, go ahead. So, as they're as they're they're trying to carry him, and people keep losing keep losing grip everywhere because I mean he weighed about 175 pounds. He was a average sized dude, but dead weight is different than moving somebody that oh, will yeah. cooperate with you. So like as they're carrying him, like his fucking clothes are ripping. He has this huge rip in the crotch of his pants, and they dropped him. So they're like, "Fuck this!" They just start dragging him. And as they're dragging him across the floor, they're leaving this, like, shoulder-wide, like, blood smear going down this corridor. And uh, Comus flips out because he hears a voice at the top of the stairs, and he's like, Oh, shit, the cops are here, the cops are here, and everybody's trying to get over the body and get away. (laughs) And as they're, like, running back down the hallway, one of them looks back, and Mickey Featherstone is headed down the stairs with a fucking mop and bucket. Hey, guys, I got the mop! (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, what the fuck are you guys doing, you know? So he's like, there's no cops, you know, and he explains to him, he's like, I told the dude outside the door we're going to send somebody out to help him, you know. So they just decide, fuck it, we're not going to 
we're not gonna dump him in the dumpster. They turned his pockets out. They fucking roughed him up. And, uh, they pulled his pants down. Yeah, they like, make it look like a robbery gone wrong, and they just fucking left his body there. Yeah. It, <laughs> they went back upstairs, and McElroy well, joined them at the bar at this yeah. point. And as they're sitting there, like you, like Jimmy is getting noticeably like nervous, like he's tapping on the bar, and he's thinking, and he's like, hey, did anybody pick up this bullet casing? Because he, he shot him once in the back of the head, nice. and then he shot him two more times after he was down. I, th- I think, actually, Jimmy actually pukes actually throws up and this is the first because time. he was nervous yeah because not because of what time, he did yeah jimmy had actually or mickey had ever seen jimmy you know in this state right he's like oh holy shit so mickey kind of steps up at this point and is like okay hey you know so he's, he sends McElroy downstairs to pick up the bullet casings and uh he, he tells him there's three yeah he comes back and he goes where are they he's like i flushed them down the toilet that doesn't really work that way come to find out he left him behind the toilet. Well, he left one. He left one behind the toilet. He couldn't, he, he couldn't find it. And there was some other weird shit that happened. Like, uh, uh, Bobby Huggard had a, a greeting card from his girlfriend in his pocket, and in the well, yeah, in the fucking scrum of everything going on with this dead body, it fell out onto the body. So that when the police get there, they're like, <clears throat> "Okay, we've got a dead body. We've got a card with somebody's name on it, and we got a bullet casing." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looks like we just solved the fucking murder case. They were after this greeting card the entire time. <laughs> greeting card assassin. Yeah, so uh, this whole and this whole thing starts to drag on, you know, yeah. cuz So, I think we should probably call it there until next time cuz we're yes. at two and a half hours. <laughs> so, so yeah, next time you hear back about the Westies will be a couple weeks from now and that will be uh the climax of the series and uh hopefully the conclusion yes yeah hopefully justin will be back for that that'll be cool yeah that bum um. <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm gonna go hang out in a haunted house Ooh. it's not even halloween bro so cool <laughs> i'm only doing that because he wants the entire like everything oh, that we're oh, recording yeah. oh, this yeah. to him so he can edit it um so you want to talk about headphones yeah so okay. once again if you're look in the in the mood or in the need for a new pair of headphones or earbuds, go over to studio.com, check them out, and you will put in a pair of headphones or earbuds into your basket. And at checkout, put in the discount code of DarkWindows15 to get 15% off your entire purchase. Yeah. Speaking of purchasing and taking things off. What? That yeah. was bad, dude. That was horrible. Are you, are you trying to pay him to take his pants off? Yeah. You don't maybe. have to pay me. Just give me some sandwiches. Possibly. Anywho. If you like painting miniatures, you know anybody that likes painting miniatures, head on over to GameAV.net. I said at the top of the show. And you know what? I don't feel like going through it again because everybody knows Game Envy is your one-stop shop for all your amazing hobby tools. And if you need anything or know anybody that does need anything, point them in that direction. And then when they put their stuff in the checkout cart and they want to save some extra money because who doesn't like saving money, as we discussed before, put in the promo code BROADSTONE at checkout and you save yourself 10% off the entire order. Now, if you want to get somebody some miniatures, a card game, some board games, some comic books, whatever you may think they may want, or whatever you feel, you know, will be kind of fun to get them, head on over to Dicehead Games. Dicehead Games is your one-stop shop, again, for all your fun nerdery stuff, whatever you may be into. Their site is Dicehead.com. They are an amazing site that has a wide variety of gaming stuff right now. 
They have miniatures, card games, comic books, the whole nine yards, like I said before. Find what you like, tell them that we sent you, and you know what? They got everything, so there. And with that being said, just because you can't see out into the dark doesn't mean the dark can't see into you. May the Schwartz be with you. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I went there. <laughs>